Well, hey, we are live. Uh, thanks for tuning in here on Twitter or YouTube. Hopefully YouTube's working this time. Um, I'm your co-host, Dan Blue. I'm here with Bobby Stevens. Bobby, what's up, man? Good afternoon, boys. And we've got a great guest, Wynn Pelzer. How are you, sir? I'm good. Hello, everybody. So Wynn uh, was a teammate of mine. We were actually uh, roommates um, when we played together in 2014 in Camden. And then uh, and Bobby. Yeah, a couple times, man. 2012 in Evansville and 2014 right, in Camden for a little bit. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was, I wasn't popular enough in Evansville to talk to you though. I was like too low in the queue. Come on, man. To be your friend back then, but <laughs> I played, I played with your Indian clubs a couple times. <laughs> um, so for those of you who don't know, when when is a former uh, professional pitcher, graduate of the University of South Carolina, and how did you miss out? winning a national championship there? Uh, like, I was a couple years before we set the bar low, and then they came in with, you know, <laughs> a little bit more momentum, lowered expectations, you know, got a couple rings, you know, the legends in the city. So we were all right, though. A couple super yeah. regionals. And now you're a scout with the Brewers. Yeah, yeah, amateur scout, Southern California, based out of San Diego. There you go. So this, were, this special noontime edition uh, is brought to you by West Coast specific time zones. So, when how do you feel? Speaking of time zones and time, how do you feel about daylight savings time? Where do you fall on this issue? Uh, I, I I'm ready to be done with it. Yeah, we actually voted it. We got rid of it in California. So rolling into next year, there's no more daylight savings time. Really? Just, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense because we're here. We're an hour behind. Arizona kind of does their own thing. So if I go across state lines, you know, it's just, and you know, the sleeping, it's just, it's ridiculous. You know, we can, I agree. we can do without it. What do you guys think? Bobby, what do you got? What conspiracies, Bobby, are tied to daylight savings time? I don't know. I've heard, I've heard some, but I can't, uh, I can't pinpoint conspiracies for daylight savings for you. It's not on my, it's not in my wheelhouse. I don't even care. I don't know what, I don't even know what time it is at all in the last three weeks. I couldn't tell you the day or time. I assume it's Monday because we're doing this. It is Monday. I care a lot. I hate, I absolutely hate daylight. Like, why do we want it to be dark at 4.30 p.m. in the winter? Just make us sadder? So it can be yeah. light out at 9.30 at night in the summer. No, yeah, that, doesn't, just, that, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That. Yeah, you know, now my body's on a four-hour, you know, time difference based on six months. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm out. You're a traveler. You got the, we can't account for you. <laughs> I just, you know, the five o'clock when the sun's down, that's when I'm like, you know what, this doesn't make any sense. You know, I didn't be trying to eat dinner at 5.15. Yeah, it's, it's... That's when I eat my second lunch. So for all of you joining us here today, uh, we're going to talk about minor league salaries. We're going to talk about slumming it in the minor leagues as, as when and I actually did together one season, sleeping in the bowels of a, of a ballpark. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit about coaching. So... One of the interesting things about when when we played together was you watch him pitch and his delivery was just like slightly unorthodox. And I only say that in the sense that you had like a noticeably shorter stride than other guys, but you also threw in the mid to upper 90s. So guys were trying to change you through pretty much your whole career, right? Uh, yeah, man, because like you said, it was unorthodox. Um I wasn't the biggest guy just from a stature standpoint, but I was pretty strong. So, but I understand how my body needed to move in order for me to generate torque, which is how you generate velo, yada, yada, yada. 
So I was a short strider. I was a sinker baller. I was trying to create tilt, trying to get downhill. I'm only 6'1", you know, so that's kind of where that came from. But, you know, it was always you got to get further down the mound, you know, these sorts of things. You got to shorten up the arm stroke. Um, some things that I did agree with and some things that I didn't. But, you know, every year in my playing career, even through college, it was always, uh, oh, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And, you know, at a certain point, uh, you get to a point of diminishing returns and I started to lose stuff, just getting away from how my body moved naturally. And, you know, and I started to push back against it later in my career, but I think at that point it was too late. You know, in baseball terms, I was old, you know, 25, 26, you know, it wasn't a starter. So it was kind of, I was an every man, you know, there was really nothing you know distinctive about me. So, but, um, yeah, it's yeah. one of those things where, I mean, a really good anecdote was about, I want to say it was LaDainian Tomlinson, but I don't think it was him. But there was an NFL running back who has sort of like really choppy strides. Mm-hmm. And he, the way he sprints, and he's super duper, he was a super fast. I'm just, I don't think it's LaDainian Tomlinson, but basically he's not what you'd ever teach someone as right. far as if you went to a running coach, you wouldn't teach him to run like this guy. Short, short right. choppy steps, but blazing fast and like one of the best running backs in the world. So, as a as like a sprint coach, and and I was reading some of the insights by his sprint coach, and he was saying, "Look, he's super good at doing what he does. His body knows how to move fast. So I'm not going right. to mess with him. I'm just going to try to do little things to make him a little bit better version of his already kind of unorthodox self. And if I try to make him look like Usain Bolt, he's just going to get worse." Right, right. And I and I think that's something that happened to me to a certain extent because. Um, you know, even I get in the pro ball, everybody's, you know, prototypical body. You're talking 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", tall. You know, these guys are longer levers. Uh, but I was a converted outfielder. I just moved different. You know, I was always good at throwing. Never really figured out the pitching part. And um, that was always kind of what pitching coaches shot for. Is like, let's get them a little bit more simplified. You know, some of the – but it didn't work out for me. Like, I got worse as I went through my playing career. No doubt about it because trying to make these adjustments. Uh, that didn't work with how I moved. So how would you uh, approach these coaches when they're like, hey, and you know, obviously all these coaches, especially in affiliate ball, they need to like you, like they need to advocate mm-hmm. for you. If they're like, you know, this guy wins, always pushing back. He's always, he's not listening. He's not, you know, I give him advice and he doesn't take it. That's not yeah. good for your career. So how did you balance doing what you knew you need to do to be successful, but also playing the game and continue to be um, likable? <laughs> well, early on, you just lie, you know, because you're throwing a bullpen and the pitching coach is standing behind you and he goes, hey, man, you got to really work on your changeup. So in the bullpen, I'm working on my changeup. But in the game, I'm grabbing the catcher when we're walking between the end of my uh, pregame warmup and the dugout and I'm going, hey, you can call changeups. I'm going to throw splitters or, you know, wow, this guy's watching, you know, like I'm going to do what he's telling me and I'm working on it. But I also know that it's not something that you know, it's going to work out for me. I remember my first year in a full season in Fort Wayne, you know, it was, it was a mandate, you know, you got to throw 20% changeups. And I just didn't have a good changeup. I was firm. Everything I threw was firm, hard slider, hard sinker. So my changeup was basically a BP fastball. It would just be 87 and guys would just be hitting it in the gap every time I would throw one. So I got to the point where I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I just, I just didn't have enough feel in games to pull it off. And I had a good splitter coming out of college. So I would just change the grip, throw it, kind of get the same action, kind of get the same effect. And that, you know, got me through those first couple of years. Um, But yeah, man, I mean, but talking to younger players is, 
I don't think it's a problem to ask questions. I think it's actually a good rapport between a pitching coach or any kind of a coach and whatever a player is doing because going back to an old school phrase is developing feel. I think you can kind of find a middle ground if you listen to what the player thinks is happening and what he feels his body does well and what this extra set of eyeballs from the coach is supposed to give him. And I think that's a really good relationship about how it should work. I don't think it always does, but even in my, you know, limited amount of coaching on the field players, you have to have like that give and take because some guys just want to do weird stuff. And if you watch big league baseball, everybody does weird stuff. And as a coach, I would never take it away from it if it works. And that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. Bobby, what about you? I mean, what, have you had run-ins with coaches trying to change your swing or what do you do as far as approaching your own players? So I, you know, as a coach, I don't get, I get a lift, some questions you know, when you're working with younger guys, it's, they, they don't know what they don't know. So most of the parents, most of the kids assume they don't know. Um, you know, and then kind of how Wynn said, the guys that are successful, you don't mess with those guys. Like kid or a high school kid that can get barrel to ball consistently. He's strong. He look, you know, he's a successful baseball player. I mean, unless I see something glaring where the kid's just, you know, doing something that is never going to work at the next level, you kind of just tweak them. You know, would it, I, so those listening, I played with Wynn um, when he came over to the Orioles in the trade from the Padres. So guys that don't know, when, was it the Tejada trade? Yeah, Tejada. So Miguel Tejada, you know, MVP, perennial MVP candidate, very, very successful MLB player. When you get drafted or when you get traded as a minor league guy, for anyone that doesn't know, if you're a minor league guy that gets traded for a major league player, you've got some standing, at least in the organization that you came from. So, you know, what I wanted to talk to Win about, obviously you can't get into a lot of it, but, you know, the difference coming from an organization where you're, you're drafted, they've got something invested in you to an organization where – they, yes, they traded for you, but they've also got their own guys. You know, how, what was that transition like? I know I think we played together uh, a little bit after you got to, I think it was Bowie. Yeah, yeah it was um, Bowie we played together. So I, for a few years, I think it was two years back-to-back, we had some time together on the same team. But, you know, yeah. we weren't on the same team right when you got traded and came over to the Orioles. Uh, you know, what was that transition like? How was the, was the coaching style different? Was the organizational communication different? Uh, yeah, man, it was, it was a 180 to be honest, um, just the way that, you know, things were done in San Diego. And when I got over to Baltimore, um, you know, it was also, it was also like me hitting the reset button in my development, because even though I just gotten traded to the Orioles, you know, there's a lot to be said for, like you said, drafting a player, seeing them in person, having the history with them out of the amateur ranks, which is something that I can understand better being on the scouting side of it now, as you know, we hand players off into the player development side of it. It was just different, man, you know, and I'm learning new coaches for the first time. They're trying to figure out what it is that I like to do. Um, so it's a shock. It's a shock to the system because you get comfortable in the organization and it's just like, hey, man, you got 10 hours to pack up your apartment. You got to get you on a plane. You got to get to Maryland. Hey, good luck. So it was a shift, man. Yeah, I don't think people realize how how much that affects just the player in general, you know, going from where he's you know, I don't know how much communication you have with the Padres, you know, when you're at the lower levels, but just from other guys that I had talked to, I had talked about on the podcast before guys that came from other organizations to the one that I knew, uh, you know, that I was drafted by, it just seemed like you said, like a 180 where the communication was getting relayed to the player. And then you come to the yeah. Orioles and it seems like you're kind of, uh, you're lost. You didn't really know where you stood, you know, and that's a tough <laughs> position for a player, 
you know, especially now that you're on the, you're on the front office side, you know, it's a tough position for a player. You get, I would call my scout that drafted me and ask him like, what, what is going on? You know, what's, yeah. what do you know? What do you, I know you don't know enough or probably a lot, but can you give me something? You know, how do I navigate some of these situations? And it's, it's not easy. You know, guys think it's, you know, top down, you know, fluid communication, especially in a, in a billion dollar industry like baseball, but it's really not. You know, the, the thing for me is I was, I was four years into my playing career already. So, I was pretty much getting to the point of I was understanding who I was as a pitcher with the Padres. And then it was, we're going to flip you to the Orioles. And like I said, the player development reset. So a big thing with me throughout my career was, is he a starter or is he a reliever? So I'd already gone through that whole, you know, deal from the time I was in college up until I was in double A with the Padres. And I got to the point where they had already made a decision. This guy's a reliever. I just moved into the bullpen. I had a really good rhythm going. I was in the middle of about, 12, 13 scoreless innings, and I get flipped over to Baltimore. And then it's back to square one of, we want you to be a starter. Mm -hmm. And then you have to wrap your head around that. And you're just like, and that's when I was getting to the point of like, this isn't what I am. You know, I can see that, but they just got me. So they're going to do what, do what they want to do to try to see if I can fill that role within the organization. And to be honest, it wasn't my best fit because there would be days where I would go six and I'd be good or I'd go three and a third and I walk six guys and that would be the end of it, you know? So I knew I wasn't a starter, but they had to hit the reset button on that and figure out who it was that I was as a pitcher, which was tough for me because then it kind of pushed me back a little bit with who I was as a player. Yeah. Talk a little more about, about that. Cause I did that for, I think uh, one or maybe two years, the going back and forth between starter and reliever and it's hard. So what are some of the challenges that people are unaware of? Cause I, th- I know for youth coaches, they don't think about that much at all. Like they, you know, you got your kid starting, then he's, you know, coming in relief and it's hard on the body. It's hard mentally. But what was your experience with it? You know, it was hard because the good part about being a starter is you get a routine, even if you're not good at it, you know, when you're going to throw, you get the prep for it. Uh, I liked coming in out of the bullpen. I liked the stress of it. I liked the tension. I liked coming in with a hair and the runners. I was good at it. I could get a ground ball and I can get a punch out when I need it. It was a good fit for me. I didn't have the best command, so I only needed to be good in 20, 30, and 30 pitch stretches as opposed to 100, 120 pitch stretches. So that's where it really played into what I was good at as a pitcher. But like you said, man, it's tougher than people think with the wear and tear on your body when you're going through getting ready to start, coming back on short rest, coming out of the pen for two, three innings, then spot starting three, four days later, going 75 pitches. It's not easy. And if you look through history, a lot of professionals haven't pulled it off. And a lot of those guys end up not having as long as careers as they should have because it does take a soul in your body. So I'm a big believer in, especially as a scout now, of when I watch guys pitch, trying to project to what I think they are, making sure that I am expressing that. This is what he should do. Once, once we try out whatever experiment we're going to have with him, he needs to go to the pin immediately and don't ever put him back in a rotation unless this guy figures something out and he goes, I think I can do this. Because I think that's what happens to a lot of players in development is they just get cast in these wrong roles and it overexposes them and it doesn't allow them to be successful. And it was a really tough thing for me from the, the day I stepped foot on a college campus. No one ever really had a grasp on what it was that I was going to be good at at the end of the day because I was just – I would just be flashing it all the time. So it's a big yeah. deal. Yeah. And I, I feel like our paths were very similar because I was the same way. I always had like control. I could not walk people, but I couldn't right. go 110 pitches without walking 
four guys. But when you put me right. in the pen, suddenly I could compete in the middle of the plate more. You know, mentally, you're just like, I only really need two pitches. And suddenly my walks go down and right. everything just gets better. And yeah. as you look back at the you know stretch of your career, you're like, man, if I had just been full-time bullpen earlier, who knows like yeah. what might have happened. And that's, and that's yeah, no. it's tough. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I think about it all the time. I was like, you know, and, and I think about it as I'm, you know, evaluating players now. I go, sometimes I just look at a kid and I go, this guy should never start a game in pro ball. I don't care if he's in a piggyback. He should go straight to the bullpen and that should be it. He should never have a, a, a tally in that game started log unless it's just a as an opener, which is something that happens now, maybe in the minors to kind of get like a rehab guy going or something like that. But should never start a game. It should be from the fifth in and on and like, and have him get comfortable in that role earlier in his career too. So he doesn't have to figure out how to be a, a high leverage reliever in double A or triple A where the game gets a little bit tougher on you as opposed to a ball or something like that. So yeah. it's tough. Um, I mean, you guys are on the U side, you know, with the instruction and coaching and stuff like that. But I think it's important too, because you can start the development of starters or relievers, you know, from the age of, you know, 12, 13, 14, like you can get those guys in those roles because, there's colleges that need relievers and there's colleges that need starters. And if they understand what a player is early enough, I think that helps on the recruiting side too, because they don't have to play the guessing game once they get a kid on campus. Yeah. Bobby, how do you feel about that with, with younger players? I think one of the challenges is that, and this is still ringing true for like, you know, some of these sabermetric stats like war, like it's very well proven that if you can give a team 200 innings, you're vastly more valuable than a guy who can give, you know, 70 innings as a reliever. Like Craig Kimbrell at his best was still not providing as much value to his team as, you know, like a Justin Verlander. Obviously, th those are both extreme examples, but mm -hmm. giving that many quality innings to your team is inherently extremely valuable. And at the youth level, you just can't trust 10 guys on your team. You might only have three pitchers you can trust. So it's yeah. hard to say, okay, Dan, you've got great stuff. It looks like you're better suited for the bullpen. Um, and now we're only going to get three innings a week out of you. Whereas a youth team probably needs me to go, you know, five, six and fill that starting role. How do you feel about balancing that for youth, the youth game? Well, I think uh, Wynn's a good example. You know, most of these kids are two-way guys. You know, your best pitcher is like, I can just speak for us, like our, our best pitcher on most of these youth teams is also the best shortstop. He's also the best center fielder like each or the best catcher, like they, the best kids are the pretty much the best at everything. You know, when you get into high school, you have some kids that branch off and, but you're still not carrying a full roster of a pitching staff and a, and position players. I mean, there's everybody around the field is pretty much a two way guy and you almost have to do it like that. One, because kids don't want to just pitch, you know, and two, you're just, there's not enough bodies. Yeah. Just to be a, it, it, as well as I, or, either one of you guys could set up a high school team with just a pitching staff of 12 guys and a position player roster of 12 guys. Those kids don't just want to do one or the other. They want to do both. And most of the time you have to let them do both because they're that good at it. You know, especially your starting shortstop is probably also your best pitcher. He's probably got the strongest arm for at least the majority of schools, you know, yeah. just in general. Uh, now it's become a little more, where you see kids branch off, like they want to be POs at 14, 15 years old. But I mean, just from what I've seen, it's, you know, we've got two POs that are studs, but there's five games in a tournament. I mean, there's guys that just need to learn how to pitch. Um, and, you know, that's, I think that's where communication comes in. You know, I identifying these kids like, look, I know you're a shortstop, but 
you're going to pitch at the next level. You're going to pitch in college. You might have a chance to pitch in pro ball, you know, depending on who it is, you know, this needs to be your focus. You need to start really gearing up pitching. You're going to play shortstop for your high school. Your high school's got 15 kids on the team. I get it, but you're, you're a pitcher and you need to learn how to get into this routine. This is what pitchers do, you know, start focusing on that while you're also, I, you know, having some fun playing shortstop, playing different positions. So I don't know if it's easy at the youth level. It's, it's definitely not clear cut because there's so many, you got kids just logistically missing, missing games, missing tournaments, you know, whatever, what have you. So it's defined roles are awesome. If you could ideal world, you could define their roles, but you know, I don't know if there's a good way to, to tell your ACE who's also your leadoff hitter, who's also your, you know, starting catcher, what, what to do when you need them everywhere. You, you need that kid to be, a successful team. Yeah. And that's, and that's hard to, to balance that. Cause most of those guys are throwing so much playing shortstop and you can't take them off that position that they just really need to be reliever for their arm health. Like they can't start a game and then play four more in a row at shortstop. Like that's just, of course you see that all the time, which is problematic. Um, speaking of that, win, how do you, as a scout, how do you fall on the two way player stuff? So we've, we're all very aware that the best athletes on the team, like you said, are typically the best pitchers. They're typically, you know, whatever. So when you're scouting guys, A, do you actually care if they play two-way or is two-way just a symptom of them being extremely athletic? Um, and, like, what do you think about baseball-only kids or multiple sport kids? Uh, I can tell you from growing up in South Carolina, now living in Southern California, where there is almost no two-sport athletes at all. Like, everyone's uh, – from the age of like 13, 14, I do appreciate guys that play multiple sports just because there's a level of coordination that they have that even the best baseball player, that guy can be really athletic. You know, it's just like some instinctual movements that these two-sport athletes have because they put their bodies in different positions. So I look for that kind of stuff. As far as the two-way players, um, I think that as, a, as an industry on the professional side, maybe we've undervalued um, the two-way guys for a long time. I think we've seen some players be drafted as two-way two-way guys in the last couple of years. Uh, Brendan McKay with Tampa comes to mind. Um, I've had some kids come out of Southern California that no doubt could have been very early uh, draft picks as an offensive player or as a pitcher. Um, and, and I think it's something, especially in professional baseball with how the rosters are changing. Um, I think it might be a necessary thing. You see some two-way guys in the big leagues, uh, Lorenzen, Michael Lorenzo with the Reds is a guy that comes to mind for me. You know, he'll come in and throw the right in and he'll go out to center field and, you know, and he'll run around out there and then he'll come back in for the next hitter. And he's, you know, mid to upper nineties and he's, he's competent at the, at the gig. You know, I think there's a lot of guys that could pull that off. Uh, Michael Owens was a player that I remember when I was in college who mm-hmm. got to the big leagues as a pitcher. And then he came back a couple of years later as a hitter. And like that guy had legit raw power. Yeah. Um, so just like Bobby was saying, like your best player is, your best up the middle uh, position player, and he's also probably your best arm. I don't think they lose value if you have them do both. I just think if I think you can condition some of those very elite guys to do both, and they could be something that you could use on the field. Uh, so I, I do take it into account, man, because as you can see in the big league level, which I'm going to go back to a lot, is you see some of these elite athletes who might just be pitchers who are really good hitters that if you gave them 400, 450 at bats they do some damage. You think about a Sabathia or like a, uh, who's a guy, uh, Bungardner. Like that guy can hit. Like Zach Grinky 
probably would have been a first, second rounder as a shortstop if he never picked up a baseball and touched a mound. So, you know, there's plenty of guys that can do it, but once you start streamlining the talent as you get higher in the professional level, you really don't need that that much multiplicity. But I think a lot of guys can do it, man. And I do take into account guys that do it well on both sides of the ball because I think there's a correlation between how uh, adaptable they are to adjustments and how easy they can make them because they're a little bit better athletes and they just have a little bit better feel for what their body can do without as much destruction. Um, yeah. I don't Tim know Hudson. What you Tim guys Hudson think was about another- that? Yeah, Tim Hudson was another good one. He, uh, I mean, he, Tim was like a slight major league pitcher, right? Like kind of a skinnier guy. Tim he Hudson like, was, you know, a little bit smaller than me, like six feet, maybe a buck ninety. Uh, but Tim Hudson was a Golden Spikes runner. He hit four hundred at Auburn, no. with like seventeen pumps. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, it's, it's been done, man. It's like Bobby saying, you know, these shortstop pitchers. A lot of those guys can play both ways. It's just tough, especially on the youth level, with what Bobby's doing with coaching. Cause I've done it for a little bit. It's tough to kind of really manage the workload with them. You have to EH them, DH them, just give them a day off of the legs. Be like, look, man, you're just going to have to play first today and roll a ball around if you can, like stuff like that. You have to get creative, but I think developmentally, a lot of those guys can do it. I, I just think that everyone thinks you only need two bodies for every position, but like a lot of guys can handle it, man. Yeah. Bobby, where do you fall on two way players? Two way guys are great. I think two way guys are, are, I would love to have been a two-way guy. You know, every position guy thinks he can be a pitcher. Every pitcher thinks he can be a hitter. Uh, you know, kind of going back to what you two were talking about, you know, the bullpen starter, you know, what, how you fight yourself and you go in and out of, uh, of your groove as a, you know, you get into a groove as a, as a reliever. And then all of a sudden, hey, you got a spot start, like ramp it up. You know, I think this, I think it would be amplified as a, you know, it's going to take a special type of athlete, special type of mindset guy that can handle being 0 for 20 and now he's got to go start a game or he's just got lit up and now he's got to go hit, you know, he's DH and like Otani, you know, Shohei Otani guy with a, with the million dollar arm and he bats, he protects Mike Trout in his lineup. You know, this guy is a once in a generation type talent, but it's mentally and balancing his workload. Like we've never seen it. How do you do it? You know, you get a team of full of two-way guys. That that's going to tax a manager. That's going to tax. You're going to be juggling all kinds of stuff. Uh, I would love to see it more. I mean, it makes it fun. You know, it makes it fun when you see, like you said, Lorenzen is in center field and he comes to pitch and you toss him back out in left field. Like it's it's fun way to you know it's 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 like playing more like playing a video game and yeah. more like being you know baseball that you know when you're younger. But it's I don't know how I don't know how realistic it is talent wise. You know, when you got guys that are fringe at both you know is being fringe at both make you a make you a competent MLB player because you can do two things that the above average fielder or the above average pitcher can only do one you know where do you how do you yeah, value how do you a value point. a guy that's average <clears throat> at two things for a guy that's slightly above average at one you know I, I don't know how good Lorenzen is is strictly a position player or strictly a pitcher I think his value falls in the fact that he does both um, but does he have more value than some of the other guys in that bullpen that are getting more consistent outs or that are more high leverage pitchers? I don't know. I just, I really don't know. Um, it's fun to watch though. Yeah. And you think in a college situation, it's going to be more valuable because they just might not have guys who are better than that. But in the big leagues, if you're hitting 250 as a pitching player and pitching to a 4.5 as a pitcher and you're two way, there's guys that can do both those things better. 
Like, you know, so it's not like you get your job saved. And then I think you run the risk of, I'm looking up Lorenzen's stats right here. And he was, you know, 2.9, 3.1, 4.5, 288. He had a, actually, he's trended better. I mean, that's his most recent year's 2.9 ERA. Um, I don't even know how to find his hitting stats. I think he's, he's better on the bump that. than he is. He's better on the bump than he is as a position player, I think. But he does have some value as a defender because he was a Cal State Fullerton guy before I started doing the area. And from all accounts, he's probably one of the freakish people anyone's ever seen touch a baseball field. Like, I don't know if you've seen, like, the video of him and Puig and um, who's the guy, Dietrich, doing curls in the dugout in Cincinnati last year. But, like, the guy's just a phenomenal athlete. So, at the very least, it's a two-for-one special on the roster when you can get those guys that can do both. And like you said, he's really competent as an arm. And if he can put him in center field and he can run around in an above-average clip late in games when outs really matter, like, you need balls that get caught. Uh, I mean, it, it's value. Like, and that's – I was a converted center fielder, so – like, I understand that role just from doing it in college a little bit and doing, the, doing it all through high school. But, like, I, I, I think there's a ton of guys that can do both, man. Uh, yeah, I know it's big, easier the, on the amateur level, but go ahead. The big equalizer is hitting. You know, yeah. if you, you're not going to get – you're not going to get a consistent at-bats. Like, even Otani's not getting That's enough consistent at-bats. Like, he's off the, net, the day after he pitches. I think he's off the day before he pitches – or the day he does pitch. So the guy's only yep. getting, you know, a stretch of 10, 12 at-bats, and then he's off for two days. I mean, that's tough as a hitter, just yeah. speaking from personal experience. Like, if you're not getting six days a week at-bats and you know you're in the lineup without having to have success the day before, that's tough. I mean, it's tough for, at any level to be the spot guy to come in well, because you're usually not getting – you're not seeing those reps. Like, people think, you oh, you can do stand-ins. You know, you could hit BP. Like, it's not the same. It's – it's just – it's a different mentality. It's a different look when it's – when it matters and mon- and money's on the line. Well, it just goes back to the question of, you know, how important is routine in baseball? And I think it's one of the biggest – the biggest factors in how successful players are at the end of the day is, you know – and I know Bobby from playing with him. Bobby, you know, you're probably a utility guy, not in the lineup every day, having to stay ready. That's the hardest exactly. job in baseball because – especially if you're a utility guy and you're going to be pinch hitting late in the game, you're going to be hitting off the guy with the best stuff. You're going to be coming off the bench. You're flicking pumpkin seeds at the foul line. You know, you're just throwing double bubble in your mouth and somebody calls down and goes, Bobby, grab a stick. And like, I got to go hit off 97 now. And this is my yeah, first get off that toilet. Get off that toilet. Go hit. Yeah. You know, like, so, you know, routine is a big thing, man. And I don't, I think we've kind of, I don't think we've gotten away from it. I just think it's augmented a little bit about how guys work. But you, you got to be able to have a system set in place and you go back to the two-way guys and what the value they have because they don't get the reps. And they're going to have, you know, lower production at one of those roles is because of I'm not doing it enough. And it's tough, man. Baseball is hard enough. If you if you think, like, as a pitcher, I know for, for me and maybe for Dan is if you go four or five days without throwing a baseball – and somebody goes, hey, why don't you go get me six outs? Yeah, good luck with that. That's not going to be fun for you. And it's the same thing as a hitter. If you haven't seen live pitching in, you know, however long, you're going to be like, that looked like a 1,000 miles an hour. I have no idea what I'm doing in here. So, and that, that's another question with the two-way guys as well. Yeah, and one of the things uh, that I found really interesting about some of the new stats is that there's basically, I think it's, I'm probably going to quote this wrong, it's either a 30-point or 40-point deduction if you're a pinch hitter. So if you're a career 300 hitter, and now you're pinch hitting, you're just going to take a 30 or 40 point deduction. 
And so they can expect that you'll pinch hit at about a 260 clip or 270 clip. No matter how good Which, you are, that's the penalty for being a pinch hitter. It's because you're not ready. You're just coming off cold. It's just, it's yeah. hard. Which would make you the best pinch hitter ever. If yeah. you did no it doubt. <laughs> no doubt. If you did it a 235 clip, you'd get a multi-year deal in the big leagues because you'd be the best at it even still doing it that way. But it's, it's a tough job, man. Pinch hitting is the worst. It's like being the mop-up guy where you, you're just sitting back there, the game should be over, and then all of a sudden you got to get loose and throw the last inning. And it's like yeah. you, you got like some it. guy, you don't want it. Like you, you, you pinch hitting, you're, like you said, you're either going in against the closer in a high, high leverage at bat, you know, the most high leverage at bat probably the whole game for anybody, or you're going in because you're down 15 runs and you've been sitting there for three and a half hours and yeah. the, the three-hole guy's like, I'm done here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, okay, great. Yeah, and the other thing about being a a spot starter where you're stuck mixing the reliever and starter roles is your stats are kind of – it's going to be tough to have a decent passable ERA because you don't accumulate innings very fast as a reliever, obviously. You're going in once, you know, one at a time, a couple a week. So you have to put in good – like you think of what's what's a three ERA as a reliever. It's every third inning I give up one run, just one single run. Yeah. And so now if you have 12 scoreless innings and then you get a spot start and you give up three runs in four innings, your ERA has ballooned. And because it's harder to just suddenly go five innings, go six innings, they're not going to be clean very often. Like, oh, hey, hey, Wynn, just go put up six shutty for us. Okay. Yeah. In reality, you're going to go add six innings with four and runs to your tally. And now suddenly your ERA has ballooned and it doesn't really reflect how well you've been pitching. And then it's hard to get that back down if you jump out in the bullpen. It's like, all right, now i got to put five scoreless innings together over a two-week period to get back. And one of the, just one or two bad starts can really blow up a whole season. And then people look at yeah. you on paper and like, oh, this guy's not that good. It's like, well, I had you know, 17 good outings and two bad ones. Yeah, and that's kind of why I think and – this, and, this and this is honestly a thing that I wish was around when I pitched is because – Although I do value ERA as a as a factor of like this guy's really good at not giving up runs. I know I know now there's a bunch of different metrics that go away from it. They don't necessarily look at a guy's ERA. You know, you got FIP and you know Babbitt. I'm just gonna make these up in the words, which is batting average on balls and play and all of this stuff. There's a lot of there's a lot of good luck, bad luck involved into it. Like guys with really low ERAs, it is usually completely dependent on them just being filthy. Like you're not getting anything off of me, you know. So. I kind of just go, I throw out the really, the really bad outing, throw out the really good outing, grab the rest of them, and that's kind of a better snapshot based on ERA of, like, what guys are. But it's like you said, man, if you're a bullpen guy and spot starting, you're going to have that two-thirds where you give up six, and it's going to be like, ah, this guy's just, you know, he's just okay. You know, if you yeah. look at it like that. But, I, I mean, the game's changed. I mean, we can talk about that, too, just how, just how stats are kind of, you know, the back of the baseball card doesn't matter because it's the stuff that, you know, it's all like the metrics that have come into the game have kind of changed how players are regarded based on like if they're good performers or not, man. Like it's, it's, it's a lot different than when we were playing, man. I'm telling you, man. we got done, but like five, six years ago, like it's just night and day how players are evaluated. Yeah. It's way different, way different. Um, so just, speaking ahead. on, speaking on some of those uh, scouting stats and, and tools, what, what's in your tool bag? So when you go to a game, obviously you got your radar gun, 
Mm-hmm. Is there anything, and obviously I'm sure there's proprietary stuff that we're not going to have you, you know, get into, but yeah. what, what does the modern scout look like just in general today? What's different? I mean, it's not a big secret, man. I mean, you could, if, cause you guys, you know, you're in the youth of baseball. So if you go to like a PG tournament, um, you got track, man, you got X velos on the scoreboard, you got your stopwatch, you got your radar gun, you know, they're, they're pumping spin rates up there. This stuff is universal knowledge. I'm not really getting any unique information when I'm sitting at an amateur baseball game. You know, everyone, anyone can pull up TrackMan. Um, you know, you can pull up Game Changer, and it's got box scores for you right there as you're watching and stuff like that, pitch counts and all of that good stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's kind of what I'm sitting there with at a, at a baseball game, and I'm doing my own stuff on my notes. Like, I'm charting. I'm, you know, counting how many times he's landing a breaking ball for a strike, if he's finishing it. Is it is it wide? Is he trying to get out? So, like, these kind of things, you know. But as far as tools, I mean, it's pretty simple, and it's, it's stuff everybody has. You know, it's just kind of – how you diagnose what you're watching, man. Like, what are you looking at? What are you, what are you thinking about it? You know, and I, especially with pitchers, like I'm kind of really focused in from doing the job myself of trying to figure out if what he's doing is effective in the long run. But, you know, just bare tools, a stopwatch, radar gun, you know, camera, you're going to get some video, you're going to get front, you're going to get open to kind of see how the body works from two different angles and stuff like that. Um so it's, it's pretty simple, man. And I mean, and I don't know if you guys seen them. They got the spin rate guns out. You know, Stalker's made a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I wouldn't necessarily trust a pocket radar. I don't want to slander their material here, but sometimes those are a little off. But, um, yeah, man, I mean, there's it's the standard equipment. It's just when you go sit down and re-look at it, you can really get in-depth with a lot of stuff, you know, from the track man being. Because, I, I mean, we got, we got high schools here in Southern California that have track men, which I don't That's know amazing. if you've seen that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm and track man, rap soto. Like we got, they got the rap soto on the field. I mean, you can get all of that data. Like if you go to a practice, I mean, it's, it's stuff that everyone can get access to. So it's just kind of, it's, it's a different world, man. So that's a, that's something I was curious about too, is how, how much do you trust your eyes when you're scouting and how much do you trust what you, the numbers that you're getting from the track man and, and also from the organizational side? I mean, if you, you know, you maybe can't talk about it, but if you, you know, if you go to your, uh, your cross checker and tell him, you know, this is a guy, you know, how much does he want to know about those measurable numbers that you get off the technology and how much does he want to know from what you're looking at with your own eyes and how he's competing and stuff, maybe that you can't measure, uh, yeah, I, you know, from the track, man. I think nowadays in order to be a good evaluator, you have to blend both sides of it. I like to trust my eyeballs, not to be arrogant, but I think that, I think that watching a player just from kind of having this old school mentality, watching a player, especially a, let's just use a pitcher as an example. I'm going to, you know, watch his stuff, see how he sequences, see if he can command. And then I'm also going to let the hitters tell me, because even if it's 85 or 95, you guys go to games, you go to big league games, and you see a guy that's blowing and it's 95, but every three fastballs he's backing up third base. That's telling me right there that that's not a good fastball. I don't care what the numbers tell me because the hitters are telling me that that thing's really hittable. I don't care if it's a high spin rate, it's 98. If he's getting barreled, that means that there's something wrong with how he's, you know, using that pitch. It might be location. It might be, you know, inefficient spin. He can't come like something's wrong there. And I need to kind of maybe go back to the data to give me evidence to maybe figure out, but I do kind of feel good about, I can go to a game and be like, you know, this is, you know, he's a little bit here. You know, he's not really – he's backspinning the baseball true, so that's why guys can see it. He's flat, something. But I think in order to be a good evaluator now in 2020, 
you have to have an understanding of you can go to a game and eyeball it and then you can use the data and the metrics to kind of corroborate what it is that you thought you saw and if you do that enough and you're kind of getting to the same point by using your eyeballs and then going back and being like oh that makes sense then I think you can do a pretty good job at kind of figuring out who a player is and who he might be down the road and as a, as a coach what you might need to fix uh, I I don't think you can really do it one way now. I just don't think that's the the environment that we're in on the baseball side. So, yeah, and it's funny that you bring that up because you know there's the uh, the Flat Ground app on Twitter, which mm-hmm. is a yep. phenomenal resource. Guy Rob, you know Rob Friedman pitching. Ninja I know Rob, started. man. I actually used to used to coach Rob's kid Jack when I was living in Atlanta. Uh, yeah, he's he's good. He's still at Georgia yeah. Tech, right? Yeah, Jack. And that's a it's a great resource, and what they've done is amazing. But as you go through all these players who are like, hey, look at me. Here's my stats. Here's my numbers. And I do the same thing as you. And I'll, I'll see like an ind- independent ball free agent. And he's like, mm-hmm. hey, right-handed arm, you know, I'm 6'3", 94-97. And I'm like, hmm, he's not listing stats. Why didn't he list his right. stats in right. Google? Right. And then you, you look him up and he's got an 11 ERA. And you're like, dude. What are you well, doing? Just, what are you doing with your winner? Are you just throwing a ball into a net and trying to throw 98? Or are you actually trying to maybe get hitters out at some point? That's why you're released. And and that's the thing too, man, is you can use you can use the, the metrics to validate what you think you see with your eyeballs. And you can also go back and reverse do it and just go to, okay, I see that you got this and the velo's this and the spin rate's this on the breaking ball. What am I missing? Just let me go to a basic stat line. And I was like, oh, you're walking seven guys per nine innings. And you might not only you might only be giving up and hitting inning, but there's three guys on base every time you give up a knock. And you can't you can't efficiently get outs. Yeah. Because you can't sure. command the strike zone. So this is why you're an independent ball, even though you have elite arm strength. And that's all it is. It's not a skill, it's just elite arm strength. And good baseball players turn tools into skills and they can use them on the field. And we're sitting there talking about all these metrics. That is baseball, and that is good players throughout history. You have tools, you turn them into skills through reps, and you, you're able to apply them in games, and you're effective. And, like, that's kind of how I simplify it. I don't, I don't necessarily want to get caught up in too much information because you just feel like it's, over, it's overload. It's like, yeah, spin rates and, you know, all of this. It's, it's good to have, but I'm going to let – this is a good thing that I learned in scout school, man. And this is, this is how I, um, when I say I'm watching my eyes and I'm getting feedback from hitters, it's like, what did the ball do? You know, like when a pitcher threw it, did somebody hit it? Does it get hit a lot? You know, as a defensive player, as an infielder, does he catch it a lot? You know, does the ball get caught a lot? What does the ball do? And that kind of helps you follow the game and how good guys are and what it is that they're trying to do. And it's really simple, you know. Yeah, the ball is the best, the ball is the best data. You know, yeah. if they if he's got a high spin rate, that curveball, you're going to see that curveball break. Uh, you know, you kind of you kind of touched on a little bit with the with the numbers and the metrics and stuff. I mean, that stuff, you know, the spin rate, all that stuff, like you said, am, on the amateur side, that stuff's going to matter. I would think a lot more, you know, how how card, how, you know, what's kind of spin rate does he have? What kind of numbers can he hit, you know, metric wise? But once you get in the pro ball, I mean, you get a few years under your belt in pro ball. I mean, you're you, those stats matter more. You know, I, you, yep. if you want jobs, you can't, like Dan said, you can't go to Twitter, post yourself throwing off a mound in the winter in shorts saying, this is my spin rate. And then someone looks up your stats and your ERA is a nine and you've got three full seasons under your belt. Like, right. you're just not get like that stuff. 
the ability to be good at the game takes over it more so than the it tools matters. than the tools that would make you good at the game. You know, the, you look for tools as a scout, or I would assume you're, you're looking for tools, you're looking for successful baseball players, you know, but you look for guys that are projectable. That's the word you hear a lot. You know, where do you see this kid in five years? Where do you see him yeah. being as a big leaguer? But if you're – you got three years of double A and you're a free agent, you're looking for a job. I mean, unless somebody sees something that was underutilized in your game, your numbers and your performance is – are your that's your measurable metric. Yeah, that's your resume. That's what it is. I mean, and there, there could be – they're always outliers, but – I don't think there's – there's a reason they're called outliers. There's two of them out of a 1,000. There's not 300 of them out of a 1,000. You know, like, so you can find some outliers in the stats. But, I mean, you, you, want, you want tools that play, plain and simple. I want a guy with arm strength who can pitch. The, the, the fun game for me is going to a game and watching a kid that's 89 and 93 who can spin the baseball, who can command the baseball, who can change speeds – who can change eye levels, and he is just disrupting timing to a point where no one's having a fun at bat. He's not throwing 97. He is just pitching, and it is fun to watch, and every inning is 10 to 14 pitches, and he's out of there. Seven innings in, and you can look down, and you're like, man, there's only an hour and 30 minutes into this game. This guy's cruising. Like, that guy is going to be good no matter where he pitches. And it has nothing to do with velo. But you take a high school kid who's 80, 85, and he can do that same thing, that guy's going to get a lot of outs. He might not get a lot of outs at the D1 level, but I promise you he can get outs at the D2 level. And then, like, if you get a guy that's 88, 92 can do that in college, he's a really good D1 arm. He's going to start on the weekends. Like, those guys play all over the map if they can do the things that are outside of just the raw measurement. So, when uh, one thing that was interesting to me, and we, I have another friend who's a scout, and we were talking about – I went to a lot of mid-major D1 games here recently before the season was shut down. and didn't see but one kid throwing consistently above 90. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this notion popularized by social media and like different places that this idea that 90, 90 poo is a thing that exists. But when you go and scout players, sure, there's more guys that throw 98 than ever, right? There's more guys in affiliated ball that throw super hard than ever. But there's also, if you go to a minor league game, you still will see lots of guys get run out there who are 89 to 92, 90 to 94. Um, how, How often do you actually see college and pro guys throwing 95 uh can you guys hear me i think i lost am i still good can you i can me? hear you yeah, you're good. Still right. good. Perfect. yeah um I, you see it a lot you see it a lot um starters uh starters and back end guys you're going to see it a lot it's very freaking that's like 60 percent of those guys are going to be firm um you know you will see those 88 to 90 guys 91 uh you see it more from the left side um You'll see like a senior signed college arm who has really good field of pitch. He'll be run out there um, as a starter sometimes. But when I when I go do pro coverage, I see a lot of velo. It's just it's just kind of how pitching is geared. Is get velo, learn how to pitch second. And as somebody that was firm, I wish I would have done it the other way around. And I try to tell guys learn how to pitch first, then get stronger, and then you're gonna throw harder. But you already have the the difficult part figured out. But I see a lot of velo, man. It's just I mean, you get on you get on the internet. You talk about the flat ground app. Like it's the thing that catches people's eyeballs. So you know, it's like, ooh, this is ninety four. Ooh, this is ninety six. You know. Um, so yeah, man, arm strength is a big thing in in professional baseball. Um, 
a lot of people want it. Uh, it just gives you more margin for error as far as, you know, missing hard contact, missing barrels, not so much missing bats, but it just makes it tough on hitters as Bobby can kind of talk. I mean, even if a guy's flat, if he's 97, that gives you less time to react to it, you know. 97 is 97. Don't matter if it's straight <laughs> as narrow or, you know, running under your hands. To win, I want to know, because Dan and I argue about this, does anybody in the scouting world use the term or phrase arm talent? <laughs> That's a football thing, man. I've never. Come on. It. Are you kidding me? I've never used it, man. That's, you've been watching too much of uh, what's my no name? No one says Dilfer. arm talent. You've been too much Dilford. <laughs> <laughs> I say I use the phrase arm talent and Dan, Dan says nobody uses that. I said it's a, it's a thing. People say it. it it's I a say thing. It. I've heard it in football. I've never heard anybody say it in a baseball field. Exactly. I, I use the term a guy's a good thrower because some guys are just good throwers, like plain and simple. That's good what I throwers. Good throwers, the football. They're just good throwers on the baseball field. I don't know if they can spin a football, but I, I, <laughs> arm talent. I, I stay away from that one, man. I, I haven't dropped that one yet. But uh, arm talent. Uh, feel free okay. to use it. Feel free to use yeah. it. He's I might pop. He, he's not going to. No. Wins <laughs> wins better than that. He's above that. <laughs> he's I mean, going to use it. I get the context of it, but I'm not going to be at a game. Though. Guys got really good arm talent. Like I'm gonna probably say that guy can throw the hell out of baseball. That's probably what's gonna happen. I'm not gonna have arm talent. Can I say hell on here? Just PG thirteen. You can say you can okay. say hell on here. Yeah, right. it's gonna be on your. It's gonna be in in your report. How's his arm talent? Yeah, How's it's gonna be a excellent. line item. Phenomenal arm talent. Yeah, um, so, but arm strength, man, is big. You know, everybody wants everybody to throw ninety five, but you know, you give me a dude that can eighty eight to ninety four at any day of the week. Sink it, ride it spin it, move some feet. You know, no one's comfortable in that at bat. You know, you're like, he's throwing four pitches. I don't know what's coming. Kyle Hendricks is always the example I go to. You know, you can sit there and watch a bunch of guys throw 100 miles an hour, and Kyle Hendricks is up there with like 87 and a half mile an hour fastball. And it's not a fun at bat because you can't get the barrel to it. It's never where you think it is when you start your swing and where the catcher is going to catch it. You know, the changeup's unreal. He throws like three different ones. You can throw it in a teacup, and no one's having fun during that at bat. And velocity is always perceived. You know, a 98 is 98. You have to get ready to hit 98, but 88 is still fast. Go get in your car and drive 88 miles an hour. You're not moving slowly, you know. Like, and as a hitter, I know Bobby can talk about this. And, Dan, you know, you talk about per perceived velocity, you know, based on location and stuff like that. A hitter, a hitter is only timing what the velocity is. And during every at-bat, 88 is going to be firm in an at-bat if you're facing a guy that throws 88, and 98 is going to be firm in an at-bat when you're facing a guy that throws 98. As a hitter, you just got to get your timing right, and that's going to give you whatever chance you have at hitting. You know, so if, as a guy who threw hard, I think velocity is overrated, plain and simple. It doesn't matter. You got to command it. You got to make sure it moves, and it's got to have some deception. And those three things are really, really good factors in keeping you off the barrel. Like, I just – I think it's overrated. So, but – so let's segue because I want to talk about something that we talked a little bit off air. Um, so when was we were talking about your journey and you being trying to be trying to be coached into being someone that maybe you weren't. You said you felt like sometimes these old school coaches were just kind of reiterating stuff that they'd heard from their coach and then their coach and then their coach. And then at the same time, uh, I mean, that's all valid. And at the same time, there's a lot of new school coaches who maybe didn't play really all that far in baseball and they're really chirpy about this is the new way we have to do it. So 
Yeah. Everyone, everyone's like getting in fistfights on Twitter and being super, there's just so much mocking going on. We're making satirical videos to put other coaches in their place. It's just like embarrassing on the web. Um, yeah, man, it's uh, online, online baseball, like Twitter baseball is, is interesting, man. I stay out of it, but like I said, you know, we're talking about the scouting, there's a middle ground. You know, I think, I think a lot of stuff that, you know, conversations I have with coaches coming up was just based off of feel that they had for what they did. But, and I think now you do get a lot of data-driven instruction and coaching. You know, you're giving a player instant feedback if if you're sitting there with an iPad or a rap soda or a hit tracks or something like that. Um, It's just, it's just two different worlds. And we're talking 15 years in baseball, you know, it's not really a, a big gap, but, I don't think anybody's extremely right or extremely wrong. I also just think that there might be, you know, some like micromanaging because like players don't know what they're doing a lot of times. You know, I just think that they have to develop their own ability to coach themselves. You know, we've all been in clubhouses. A lot of that stuff is I'm going to watch somebody do something I don't know how to do and see what they do. And I think that's a, that's something that might be lost is because it's, you know, you know, you're chasing the metrics a little bit and, like, the technology kind of, you know, like, it is a lot, man. I don't really want to get into it, to be honest. It, it, <laughs> it is a lot that goes on in baseball that, you know, I'm still wrapping my head around, even being on the professional side, is because um, it's just different. You know, it's, you know, you go watch a bullpen at a, a professional complex and, you know, there's, like, eight TV monitors out there, you know. Like, and everybody's getting instant feedback, you know, and it's not so much like if you're throwing a bullpen, you know, like if I would have did it 10 years ago, I'm working on command and, you know, trying to make sure this pitch looks like that pitch and this pitch looks like that pitch, you know, like guys are just like, you know, trying to get the spin rates right, stuff like that. It's just different, man. You know, just the way that guys are getting developed, you know, Um, and I think there's some good stuff to it. I think there's some bad stuff to it. Just like the old school, I think it was trying to articulate something that they just didn't have enough data enough data on and that's kind of where we've gotten to they're trying to use the data to articulate stuff that you know wasn't available 10 years ago it's just it's just a switch in you know how guys are coaching them but it's just it's just different man which i'm sure you guys experience enough i know bobby likes to get in on twitter (laughs) i like to i like to start up you hit it uh, you said it perfectly there's a lot of times guys that played all of us included did stuff that we could not articulate it or we didn't articulate it, how it looked if you were watching us on video. So the great example is you hear A-Rod talk on, you know, his whatever Sunday night baseball. And this guy's talking about swinging down to the ball, straight down to the baseball. You watch A-Rod swing. This guy is hitting home runs over light towers. Like he's not chopping down on anything, but that's a feel. And that's what he's, and that's what in his mind is what's getting him to swing how he swung and what made him the $500 million player he was. You know, some of the drills, the mocking on Twitter is going, it's, is a lot of the drills and the the hitting drills is PVC pipe. And the, you know, I can remember being younger and pitching drills, you know, you put a a towel between your fingers and you're, you're doing towel drills. Like how stupid did towel drills seem to guys 50 years ago when they were introduced to it? And then it just, then, then the new school became the old school. You know, those those old, old school guys, you know, moved on, passed away, whatever happened. And then the guys that were doing towel drill or had the two by four that you had to stride on and yeah. pitch, you know, stay online. Those guys became the old school guys. They became the old guard. And now the new guard is we all do get older. Yeah, we all do get older. You know, 
So, but you hit on the head. Like guys don't know what the can't necessarily articulate what they're doing that makes them successful. I mean, I if yeah, somehow he threw his slider and he's like, hey, just you know, I just try and throw like I was throwing a football, and then you try and do that and you throw one towards the on deck circle and you're like, what the hell? Just you know, that makes no sense. Yeah, because if you did it, you throw a thirty foot cutter. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's you, you get all of us. I did stuff that I was just like. I just did it. You know, you just, you, that's how I did it. I don't know. I, what I'm thinking isn't probably mirroring what I was at physically doing. And the same thing with probably with you guys with pitching and, you know, maybe it was the opposite. Maybe everything you said mirrored exactly what you did. And, think, you know, it's tough. It's with, it's like a, it's like a reflection. You got to look inside, like what, you know, what is actually happening versus what I perceive as getting me to do that. Okay, as you say, reflection, I think the biggest advancement in baseball development in the last 15 years has been video. No doubt. Yeah, you because see it. You got to believe it. You can't, lie. You can't hide from it. There's so, there's so many times where I'll talk to a player and I'll ask him questions trying to get some insight on what he thinks he's doing, and I will pull up a video and go, you think you're a high three-quarter arm slide guy. You're not even close. You know, like they just don't know – where their body is in relation to like they just they have no clue you know they're like yeah hey, i do this i do this i was like you don't watch a lot of video of yourself do you and i think that's the biggest the biggest thing that's come into baseball is the last couple of years because all of this stuff has kind of diverged off of the usage of video into just kind of like slow motion high speed all of this stuff like video has done wonders for you know just really like you say a rod like i'm pretty sure a rod did that segment and then he went back and looked at some of his hidden videos. Like I wasn't talking about the same thing. He wouldn't say it in public, right? But of course, people brought it to his attention, and that's kind of where you can relate to what's happening, to what you can watch on video, and then really get intricate into some of the the coaching and the, the just the small tweaks and stuff like that. Which I think that's really the best part that's come out of it. You know, like but. I just, like I said, like some of it, I'm like, ah, you know, I don't know if that means anything. But the PVC pipe stuff. so so where where i where i feel like the big point of contention comes in is that you've got guys that yeah exactly you've got guys uh that are you teaching throwing are you teaching pitching because if i'm Mm -hmm. teaching pitching and i want to learn pitching i'm going to listen to the guy that pitched against hitters at the highest level i'm not going to listen to the guy that calls himself a movement specialist and tells me that, well, this is how your body should move to do this perfectly. Like, okay, that may be true. Like that biology may be true. But when I'm facing Mike Trout and this is happening, like, what's my sequence? What are you guys doing for sequence? You know, teach me what your thought process is when you're pitching to this guy. And this is a scouting report. You know, the application of like hitting approach as opposed to just swinging, you know, there's the body moves a certain way if you're swinging optimally, but that optimal physical movement of swinging might not work in the box because you have to react to the slide or the cutter, the two seam pit, you know, the two seamer 98. And then you see 80, like there's the, there needs to be a separation of what we're discussing or not just not us specifically, but these Twitter coaches are just, they're going at it as like, you're a hitting coach on Twitter, but you're not teaching the kid to hit. You're just teaching them how to swing. Like this is what, so and this is what Pujols does. So this is, you know, this is how you should yeah. do it because Pujols is really good. Yeah, no shit. Pujols is really good. 
But what is Pujols thinking about when he's facing Kershaw and the right. ball's moving 12 inches and all of a sudden he throws that curveball that nobody can hit? Like, what do you t- how do you teach him? And that's, that's where the discrepancy comes in, I think. Which that's fair. But at the same time, when we start, like, attacking someone on, on the internet, seeing, like, oh, you're teaching this drill, you need to be te- – well, can't we all kind of, like, stay in our lane? Like, maybe this kid just needs to fix his swing – and like he's not ready for approach stuff yet. Like, or maybe I just don't have enough time with him in a given week to do both things, you know, or do both things well. Or maybe I know that I'm not an approach guy, so I just teach hitting mechanics. And um, you know, like that's just like the lane I'm in. Where I feel like some of these, I've seen some of the major league guys barking on Twitter about you're not teaching approach. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, like the kid, his swing stinks. Uh, you're right. I'm like not really because his swing stinks right now. So I'm trying to like fix that. And like, yeah, the maybe conversations, it's like they act like everything's mutually exclusive and it's, well, the conversation is never depends. that civil and it's also not nearly as fun when it's that civil. Like the fun is when they start swearing at each other and they make videos and call each other idiots. Like that is the fun. That's the whole point. You're on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter for the, for the exchange of ideas. I'm on the Twitter to see two idiots telling each other that they're idiots. That's the best part about Twitter. It's <laughs> so the best part about the whole platform. That should be your handle, Bobby the Troll. Bobby the <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you know, you like reading some of that stuff. No, it's funny, man. Like honestly, I, I'm not a hitter, you know. I so I just stay out of it. I don't even get into it on the pitching stuff either, man. I, I think what Dad's saying about like approaching stuff, but I, I do think it's teaching swings and teaching throwing. Mm-hmm. You know, like that. That's kind of what I think the majority of the market is because. I, I just think that if you haven't, if you don't have that in-game on-mount experience, I understand you can kind of glean some insight from reading and what other people are teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not trying to, you know, like talk down on anybody who didn't play at a high level, who's in a position where they're instruction pl- instructing players. But I know what that situation feels like. I understand like what that sequence might need to be to talk about an approach to pitching or you know, like a little thing to shape a slider without. Um, using any kind of technology and stuff like that. You know, I just think it's now it's I'm going to show people how to throw hard and I'm going to show people how to swing hard. Like and that's yeah, it's a tough of, balance for you sure. Know, it's okay. But the thing that sucks is, and I watch a lot of amateur baseball and a lot of kids go to hitting coaches and you see it in a game and I really feel bad for those kids who are going to a hitting guy and they're doing that stuff and you can see them like they're talking about getting on plane, which is good. But these kids lack like the functional strength to really pull off the move. And they have this very groove swing. And I'll see a high school pitcher throw like an up and away fastball. And all I'll see is this. I was like, yes, yeah, no chance. Yeah. You know, that's and like that's the kind of stuff where I go, there needs to be, you know, maybe going back and like rebuilding like basic fundamentals of even if it's throwing or hitting is this is how you spin a good, a good, like a true fastball. Mm-hmm. Let's start there. Let's spin that the right way and let's baby step it and let's get to the swing so you can cover every part of the strike zone and not just one piece of it. Because baseball as a whole, a question that I often ask myself is and other people is, has baseball gotten harder or is the way that instruction is gone, has hitting or just how people hit taken away a lot of like a lot of the skill involved? And I don't think pitchers have gotten better. They just throw harder and swings have maybe gotten to a point where it's really easy to pitch to guys, you know, because if we use professional Mm -hmm. baseball as an example, hits have gone down. Averages have gone down. 
I know we have more impact because these guys are really trying to drive the ball more. Uh, but just as overall hitters, it's not the same. It's not the same. I don't think hitters have gotten better. I just think that they've kind of created more faults in offensive approach and hitters and pitchers have more areas that they can attack hitters. In. I just don't, I don't think it's as well-rounded as it used to be, you know, even yeah. hours higher. I just don't think like, I don't think all facets of offense are being used as they were maybe 15, 20 years ago, you know, hitting singles, which as a pitcher, if you hit three singles off of me, I'm really annoyed. I have right. a problem. I have a problem if you're just going to nine single me to death. I'm always out of the stretch. If you're going to hit three solo home runs, I get a new baseball, I'm back in the windup, I can still throw my best stuff. I don't have to worry about base runners, none of it. You know? Yeah, it's true. So like, the degree of difficulty, I don't know if it's less. I definitely don't think it's more, although the velocity would suggest otherwise. I just think that the approach that baseball has changed enough that and not getting the full beauty of the product that, you know, we might have grown up watching and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah. And there's some comfort. I'm sure you felt the same way. There's some comfort in seeing a guy, even if he's got a lot of scary power, mm-hmm. but just knowing that he's going to see that he swings and misses a lot. Like there's some comfort in seeing a guy who comes up with 24 jacks, who hits 220 and punches out. He's already punched out 95 times that year. There's like a little right. bit of comfort there, especially with a base open. Cause you're like, all right, I just need to get ahead. And then the bat's essentially over. Cause he's going to get, High fastball, breaking ball, breaking ball, breaking ball, and then he's going to be out. Right. I hated hitters. I hated hitters. Like, if that's one way to put it, I hated hitters. Because I always remember my first full season, I was in Fort Wayne, and Ben Revere was a high school kid the Twins took. He was like 19, but he could fly, and his bat-to-ball skills were stupid. Like, it was unreal how much he put the bat on the ball and used his speed. And I just remember we were having, like, a pitching meeting, and I forget who was talking. I don't know if it was the manager or the pitching coach. And they're like, yeah, this guy doesn't have a lot of power. And I'm like flipping through like the, the booklet. And I'm going like, I'm like, I don't know about you, but this guy's like, like 35 doubles. And he can run. That's a problem. Like, that's not a, that's not, that guy's scary. You know, like I hate, and he was just good. He almost hit 400 that year. And you get like hitters like that. I mean, he wasn't like a big impactful big leaguer, but those type of guys, when you're a pitcher, you understand that you have to guard against what you do with them way more than 6'3", I'm right-handed, you know, what we would call slider bat speed. You know, be like, look, man, I'm just going to throw you three fastballs at your belly button that are going to bore into your hands, and I'm going to pick up this comebacker and throw it to first base because you can <laughs> That is a very comfortable at bat for me. Yeah. No, but I think a lot of hitters are like that now. Like, but that's just me, man. So I, I just – I miss, the, I miss all of baseball sometimes when I'm watching games, you know, and I think a lot of people feel that way, but it's just kind of how it's, how it's switched and how it's coached. And, you know, I, I just, I feel bad for that, that high school junior who's hitting like 210 and he can't get the bat to 84 on the outer half because his swing just makes three <laughs> foul balls up the right field line every time he, you know, takes a pass at it, you know, and he thinks yeah. it's right, but, you know. That's it's a tough yeah. part. Yeah. What's right? How do you know what's right if you're a dad or if you're a if you're a kid, a teenage kid? How, like you don't know what's right. You know what you're told, and you and you, someone like myself, Dan, or if you're working with you know a minor league or something like you trust who you trust. You get yeah. it. Yeah, you, you can't you can't have a the a pessimistic view on every single person you come across in the baseball world. Like not everybody's trying to make you worse. They might not be able to make you better, but they're not intentionally trying to make you worse. So you got to trust them, and you got to try and kind of take what they're saying, and especially at the professional ranks like 
if you you break chain of command and you you know your pitching coach tells you to do something and you basically tell them to f off or you know no I which mean, I did, which is basically what got me released with the Orioles. <laughs> so it's, that's and then if you're not that guy, if you're not, you know, the Orioles just because we're familiar with it is if you're not Zach Britton, like if you're not their number one guy in their system where he's got he's got enough clout to yeah. say no, you have to say yes or you're uncoachable. And what goes into those reports is what determines where you end up in that organization. I mean, those those coaches are basically just there to supervise you, but it, it, they're taking it, orders. Yeah, it definitely um, it definitely puts out the perception of what everybody thinks of you because you're not dealing with everybody on a day to day basis. Right. And if one coach goes, you're uncoachable. Every coach thinks you're uncoachable. You know, like it's and it's, just like, and it's hard to change that. Yeah. You can't once that's in the report. I mean, guys don't put coachable in their report they only put that negative aspect yeah. otherwise you're just a, yeah. perceived as coachable yeah. so once it gets in your report that's it you know you mouth off to a coach like you said that's basically kind of what your downfall was with the orioles or you know whatever happened in the interaction like that's gonna run its way up the ladder and now what that's 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 what everybody there no one's gonna call call you and say when what's your side of the story like you're the you're the employee yeah, and it was different, man. Like it was something I would I wouldn't have done when I was twenty two. When I was twenty six, I was like, you know, kind of spent yeah. four years, kind of, kind of listening to everybody, and I don't think I'm getting better. So, yeah, and that's how do you take control of your own. Yeah, career. you know, like I'm at the end here when I think about it. You know, and I had a good spring that year, and I was like, well, I'm still getting released. I can, I know that already. I've said the wrong thing to the wrong person. So, right, <laughs> that's it for me, boy. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. But well, now, go ahead, Dan. Well, I was going to say the the other side of the coin is that you get a lot of players because players now are more educated than ever. Like they, they've been on programs with pitching coaches and strength training programs and weighted ball programs, and they're doing more younger than they ever have. And the problem with that is now they get to minor league ball and they think that their perfectly sculpted routine is where it, it works and it shouldn't be changed and, and no one should tell them anything. And these guys butt heads with coaches, you know, in the rookie season. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas they need to have more humility. Like there's a lot of guys that don't understand how much different pro ball is than college ball where you pitch once a week or you have plenty of time to lift in between. You can do these crazy, you know, your 30 minute warm up. I mean, one of the things that both of us I'm sure learned at different points is like sometimes your warm up is, Hey, pull your jacket off and be in the game as fast as you can. Yeah. And you have to be good at that. And you can't do your way to ball 15 minute thump them into the wall thing, which is fine. But you know, I have a, a, a guy who used to intern for me and he became an OFP, an OFP guy with his team after his first year, which is your own freaking program, right? So they know that he just don't tell him anything. He just, but it's like, look, you're not used to this yet. Like have yeah. some humility, listen to your coaches. They're trying to help you along because pro ball is a very different animal. And a lot of yeah. stuff that you used to do in college, it's going to be too much now, or it's just not going to work and you need to rework things. So like let the system like you said, you were at your fifth year when you started pushing back. That's reasonable. Like you, I've done this before. You know, like, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm not a, I'm yeah, not a rookie. You, you get to a point, and I think that's, I think that's a big thing, too, um, as far as players go, is really understanding, like, look, like I said, you know, we said, I said something offline. I was like, figure out what you're good at and get really good at it. Because the reason you get signed in the first place is because you did that thing good. Somebody liked it. You need to mm -hmm. get really good at it. And then that gives you a chance to, you know, compete longer, I think, 
Um, you know, and like weaknesses, you know, like that's that's a subject that I'm like, yeah, if you're not good at something, you're probably not going to get much better at it. Like that's just plain and simple. You know, like talk about right. strike throwing, like man, like pitching is like, you know, you get a guy that doesn't throw strikes, probably never going to really throw strikes at a great clip. You mm-hmm. know, you get a four walk per nine guy, at the very best, you can get him down like two and a half. The best. Yeah. He'll never be, you know, Granky who can throw it in a teacup. And that guy's always been really good at that. You know, so like as a player, figure out your strengths and hone them and be really good at it when it's time for you to do that thing. And everybody can and, – and a big thing in professional baseball is reliability. And that's what you give yourself right. when you really hone in on, like, your strengths and stuff. And I think young players kind of – like I said, I was in year five, six, and I was like, man, I'm, I'm just – I can't do this anymore. I just feel like I'm just getting – like I was a puppet. You know, like I'm listening. I'm trying to be, like, too cordial and too, like, accepting of all this advice, and it's not helping me, you know. So – I think that's – I tell some players that too, man. I was like, really understand who you are as a player. Like, don't be an asshole about it, but really understand that this is what I do well and try to communicate that I understand that I do this thing well and I don't necessarily – you know, I want to work on it if it's going to make me better. Try things, but immediately if you feel like it's not working, be like, I, I don't know about this. Let's talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. don't just – like Bobby said, you go into a game and you're working on something and you're one for 25 – because you started doing something in the cage one day, like that stuff will get you released. In pro no doubt. You know? That's the interesting thing about where baseball is now and where it's going to be in the next five years is the guys that are being hired to be coaches in the minor leagues have never been there. They haven't been there for 140 game season. They haven't gone through a six week spring training and then an extended and then a 90 game season. Like, it's it's just, you, how do you how do you guide somebody and then where does where does your ego fall into place you know yeah. some of these like the twitter guys you fall back on these guys some got really big egos you know and if you've got a really big ego and you're a coach and you're telling a kid you know this is what you're going to do every day and it's july 15th and you've been doing it for 120 days and your body's just you're cashed like that's it i need i need to someone to instruct me or give me the tools to get through a full season and that guy's never done it. And he's push, 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 you know, I'd be, I'm curious to see where some of these guys are like the, if there's any blowback, if, yeah. you know, there's oh, always going to be guys that are going to adapt well. And yeah. there's going to be guys that never played, you know, Gary Kendall, I, you played for Gary Kendall, yeah. like never played professional baseball. I, I'd go to war for Gary Kendall. Yeah. Great, nice guy. Like he yeah. means well, he's trying to put you in a good position to succeed. And He's going to give you the best knowledge that he's got. He's not going to talk down to you. He's going to be open communication. But for every Gary Kendall, there's going to be a guy, and I won't name names because, you know, you and I have played in the same organization. Like, this guy's going to tell you what to do. And if you don't do it, it's going in the report that you're just not doing it. And it's like, come on. You know, I'm I'm trying to be successful. I'm trying to take control of my own career, and I'm being – the rug's being pulled out from under me. And I just – you, it's going to be interesting, these guys that are – you know, got this, especially the guys that have been in pro ball for a few years, you know, three, four years, and they get this new crop of coaches in there. Right. And they're going to be looking at some of these guys like, this isn't how we do things here, or this isn't how I do no, things. It's, it's tough, man. And like Dan said, you know, everyone's kids now that are, you know, getting to that high school level in the college, they've gone through a lot of these, these programming, like, like, like systems, you know, driveline, stuff like that, you know, yada, 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 all of them. Um, and it's different, man. In-season maintenance is just that. You can't do overhauls in the middle of the season. Nope. That, is, that is the quickest way to really 
yep. mess up whatever it is you have doing. If you think you're going to go like big change in the middle of a competitive environment, you're going to have a real problem. Like, and then you also have injury risks too, because you just change the way that a body is moving just enough, just enough in the middle of some competition where you're going max effort. And then you go, oh man, like my back's hurting. Like my oblique doesn't feel the same. You know, like my hamstring, like my knee tweak, you know, like something. You'll have something happen. It's tough, man. And I think that I don't, and like you said, like, and that goes back to the experience of playing minor league ball. If you got 140 games, you don't have, you don't have time for massive overhauls in the middle of the season in June, July, when your body's tired and you're going to try to do something completely different. Mm-hmm. It is a really quick way to, to like fail and, it's tough, man. It's just overall, man. Like the whole thing itself. Like we always talk about it being a grind, and it is a grind. I don't care what anybody says, and no one knows how hard it is unless you've been through it. I remember my first year full season. I hit like the hundred inning mark, and I just rolled into the training room in July, and I was like, "Why am I so tired? I got eight hours of sleep last night, and I am exhausted." It's a good and point. The trainer, the trainer looked at me and he went, "Welcome to pro ball. Get out." <laughs> like you're not you're not tired from t- you're just physically you're just tired. tired like you don't have that you don't have that energy bank like you don't just you can sleep for 12 hours don't matter you can sleep for 12 hours drink a pot of coffee like man i'm i'm tired like and, i am tired and the thing to bring it back around is my a question i posed earlier is you need a routine and you need a very strong mechanical base for what it is that you're doing on a day-to-day basis and that is the only way to get through that grind and it's it's tough, man, because there's so much going on with what you can what you can ingest, you know, in baseball right now. Yeah, you know, that's one of the awesome things about we've all played independent ball is that independent ball is like your own big leagues. You know, you you basically you're on your own program, like Dan said, no, OFP. Toys. What's that? The land of misfit toys. That's what independent. You know, admit the <laughs> if independent ball had an easier entry back into affiliated ball. It would be an unbelievable option for a lot of guys. It's just yeah. the entry back into affiliated ball is is so so difficult. Well, I and mean that might change coming up here soon, man. I, I mean, if it I, does change, it'd be awesome. I don't, I don't know how that how that's going to look, but I mean it's it's out there in the air. So if it changes, that would be that. Then you're really going to find some guys that find their own way, and that and that are really going to have the you know the wavos to say so if they get brought back into affiliated ball and say, look, I was successful. That's the only reason I'm here is because of myself. And yeah. I was successful doing this and I've got to do it. And if you're not going to let me do it, then I got you. I can't be successful. Yeah. You know, it's going to, it's going to bring some, it, it'll bring a different type of player. I think if the, if the entry level, if the entry back into affiliated ball, you know, is, is more fluid. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys read the, uh, the book, the MVP machine? I haven't. I have not. So I read it. I was frustrated by it. And I really like uh, the author, Ben Lindbergh. I think he's a great writer. But the book basically chronicles uh, Trevor Bauer and Driveline uh, founder, Kyle Bodie. And they're basically just like the the heroes of the story. And Trevor Bauer is clearly exceptionally smart at what he does. He's an exceptionally hard worker, talented guy, whatever. Um, But they really minimize a lot of his headbutting with the front office, which was well documented throughout the years. And I think the rallying cry of, of, the, of the book is in a lot of parts, this is what he had to do to make it. And this was like, like, you know, you got to stick to your guns and you got to do what you do. And I'm like, this is, this is the right message for a very tiny sliver of people um, from all reports of how he just treats the front office. Um, and, and, it, and it's 
they admit it a little bit in the book. I think they minimize it a lot, but they, they admit it. Whereas if you don't get that a lot of money as a first rounder, you can't tell everyone that you don't know what you're talking about that I do and that I'm not going to do what you want me to do because I know what I'm doing and then just do it. And I think for a lot of young kids who are impressionable, who might read that book and it's not, it's not a book that's really like marketed. It's more marketed to us, the scouting analytics, the, you know, the more adult baseball group. But, um, I read that book and I'm like, man, like I hope kids can kind of read between the lines that if you're a fringy guy and everyone's fringy compared to first round draft picks, you get $4 million. You need to really be emotionally, you need to be emotionally smart and treat people, everyone above you with a lot of respect. Because if you don't, it's going to come back to bite you. I mean, how many times have you had someone vouch for you where your career was running dry? Someone makes a call for you. Someone says, you know, give Win another chance, give Bobby another chance. I've had so many of those in my own career as a career five foot, 11 and a half fringy right-handers had two elbow surgeries. You always need a million people in your back pocket. You can't do this alone in any sport as an athlete. And to just like bulldoze through everyone that I know what I'm doing. Don't tell me how to, how to do this. Yeah. That narr- that's a tough narrative. It's a tough tone to take because you're only able to pull it off as long as you're successful. Plain yeah. mm-hmm. And as soon as you stop being successful, people go, we're good. You know, like we're just not going to put up with it. There Absolutely. And I'm sure when you probably know guys that have played with uh, who he's talking about with Bauer and mm-hmm. those stories don't come, you know, those aren't like, man, you played with Win, like Win's great dude, but, you know, this, 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 this. those stories don't come back with guys like that. Like those stories come back the complete opposite. Like really you play with that guy. That guy's the you biggest piece too. <laughs> like, Oh, that dude. <laughs> That's always the same reaction. You know, right. it's just, as long as, as long as you can make it work by what you do on the field, you can get away with it. Or there's mm-hmm. anything, as long as you have some value that you are bringing to the table, you can get away with it. And then once people go, you know what? We can do better than this. Yeah, you know? your antics don't yeah, – uh, your antics are overshadowing your performance now. Yeah, so. Yeah, and you think about guys like David Ross. Like, David Ross was kept around because everyone loved him. He provides value to the team in, in myriad ways. Same with Dustin Pedroia. Dustin Pedroia hasn't played in forever. He's been constantly hurt. But they said, like, his value is immeasurable mm-hmm. in – all these other ways, like Dustin Pedroia, he just emanates. He makes everyone better. He makes everyone more calm. He just gives positive energy to everyone. That's and, a that's an interesting example with Pedroia too, because he's you know going back to his minor league days, known as a confrontational guy. Like basically told the front office, if you don't move me up, like I'm packing my stuff, I'm going home. I'm not repeating a level. You know, I'm not doing this. Like there, there's stories about him like that, and obviously he's. You know, he's got the charisma and the and the aura where he's, you know, I know once that. he made it to that level. Yeah, there's a story. I think it's where he was in double A and they told him he's going to go back to double A for at-bats. And he was hitting like 330. He said, if I go back to double A, I'm going home. And they moved him up to triple A. And then they obviously the rest is, you know, Dustin Pedroia's, you know, unbelievable career as well, a baseball here's a, here's player. A, here's the thing based off that. You know, we're talking a lot about like development and stuff. But here's something that is almost unquantifiable outside of, the conversation people have about people like Dustin Pedroia is that right blend of makeup and confidence that doesn't cross the line into arrogance, which is, in my opinion, what makes up about 90% of big leaguers is I know I'm good. I'm not going to expressly tell you I'm good, but you're not going to talk me off of my pedestal or make me think that I am any less talented than I am. And I'm not saying they're bad guys because I think a lot of them are really good people, but 
if you've ever talked to a big league who has a really good amount of success, you just, you know, like that dude was an alpha. You know what I'm saying? Like you just feel it. Like it just comes off different. And I think it comes off in a lot of different, you know, aspects of life too. People that are successful is, like you talk about Pedroia, that's a ballsy move. Like you're in double A, you're going to tell the Red Sox that you're going to go. Yeah. You know? Like, and you walk through that clubhouse and you can look look across the room and be like, that dude's going to be all right. That dude's going to be all right. You know, you can just kind of feel it. You know, like that's something that in baseball is when you see it, you know, but if you don't really know a person up close to something, you really can't, you really can't put like a measure on. And I, I think is you talk about like value, like people in, in like the clubhouse, like Pedroia Ross, like that's a, that's something that, metric wise no one will ever be able to put their finger on unless you are in that room with those 25 26 people all the time mm-hmm. like and i think right. that's another thing that is maybe being lost in baseball a little bit is like that older dude who can just kind of house dad the clubhouse and keep it together <laughs> you know like that, that's because like rosters are getting younger like the average age in the big leagues has gone down the last couple of years and stuff like that man which i also think goes back into maybe even the quality of baseball we see on the product you know, yeah. like, I think a lot of this stuff is just intertwined, man, just because the culture of baseball is shifting so much in the last five, six years, you know? Yeah. Well, so, so is the, uh, the economics of baseball too. You know, yeah. you're going to bring up the guy. Sure. I'll bring up the prospect a year, a year early because he's got tools and we'll just let him figure it out in the big leagues. He's also going to cost us half a million. Whereas, uh, when you've been here for eight years, like you want 8 million a year, like you were making seven and a half, you had a decent year. You want 8 million? Mm, no you can go, go find it somewhere else. You know, there's, yeah. there's the, with the luxury tax, cause baseball used to be a, a no cap, you know, no uncapped payroll. Now yeah. you got a little bit of a cap, you know, not necessarily you could spend a, a billion dollars on your roster if you wanted to, but if you're going to get taxed on that money, like you got to think about who am I going to spend money on? There's some other stuff involved there. That's not particularly just based on the money too. I will say that without going into it, that we get off. Come on. No, 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 no. We got to keep winning. We got to keep winning. Keep winning. Keep, trouble, winning. But keep there, winning employed. There's, I mean, I, I do agree with you, but I think that there is some stuff that it does have some merit as far as, you know, why that's kind of kind of skewed that way. You know, which when we get off, when that red button goes away, I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, well, and, and back to your point before, and this is, and I'm not a hitting guy. But as I observe Instagram and Twitter and different things, I'm like, that that swing doesn't exist in the wild. It's like some of the, some of these hitting guys are breeding albino alligators. It's like he's not going to survive out in the in the wilderness. Anaconda is going to see you mile, you know mile <laughs> away, make you his lunch. Doesn't matter how mean you look, you know. Yeah. And I don't know enough. I don't. I can't teach anyone how to hit. But I can tell you, I've never seen any pro guy swing like a lot of youth players are swinging and it, it's this it's a swing you're talking about when it's this like i dip um out of the in and out of the zone in a hurry and i hit a ball 440 on hit tracks or something almost borderline foul mm-hmm. but because that swing doesn't exist in the big leagues it doesn't exist in pro ball no one does that and yet they're acting like that's what we want to do and it's like i've never seen someone swing like that i so, mean it's just because someone's front tossing you uh just a cupcake that's down and in and it's the ball mm-hmm. just, just square up you know but if and i've done it to some kids in cages that i've seen like you'll front toss them the ball and they'll be like missile and i'll be like bah, bah. i'm gonna throw this on the outer third and it's gonna be like a f3 in the mm-hmm. cage, you know and i'm just like now this is front toss you shouldn't 
you should never follow a ball off in front toss, which is just instant feedback. And then you look at the kid and you go, what is that? And he doesn't, he's like, oh, you know, just, I just pulled off of it. You know? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you should be able to manipulate the ball in front yeah. toss. Yeah. Well, what yeah. was funny was I, I remember, I don't know why, but I, this one guy doing this on Instagram, he was, they were showcasing him on one of these prominent accounts. And it's like, he's hitting the ball like 108 off the tee and he's not a real big guy. And I'm like, oh, and I like looked him up. I ended up seeing him in a game at the, at the end of the summer. I, I, like I went to a local uh, high A game in, in Peoria, Illinois, and I saw this guy. I'm like, that's that dude. How is he doing? 220 with 26 home runs. And it's like, I don't, uh, that's that. like, is that good? It's kind of good. Is that, but it's not good. It's like, it's, it's everything that you'd expect it to be, I guess. Like he's got pop. He doesn't make contact that well. He's got bat speed. He's but got he's got pop. pop. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. He's, I mean, he's a three outcome player. It's probably something. And his, and his swing about. also in that game didn't look like the swing right. on Instagram, which again is, is part of the reason to what, like we can't always like attack everyone. Maybe that's just like what he's doing right now. And when he gets in a game, it becomes a little more normal, right? Like, so we yeah, can't. Yeah, no, like, I mean, it, you know? it is. I think, I think just for me, just an overall statement is it, it is, it is, it is working towards a goal, but. I don't know if it's the best practice. Yeah. You know, I, I think there might be a better way to do it, but I'm not sure. That's just my opinion. Like mm-hmm. I said, right. Was hundred percent wrong or hundred percent right. I just think it, it like, like Dan said, like, that doesn't look, I understand why you would do something so, so unorthodox. I've done it with guys and lessons and pitching stuff before just to kind of get them to feel something. But you know, you go back to muscle memory, you do it enough. It becomes a movement. It becomes ingrained in you. And I think that's happening more than, people are paying attention to, you know, like you see the one good swing and you go, Oh, it's in there. We got it. You're like, nah, I'm going to need you to do that nine out of 10 times and not two out of 10, you know? So yeah. that, that ties in. Yeah. That ties into a lot of stuff. You said feel feels like a lot of these drills are for feel. A lot of these, some of these pitching drills, like you got guys pitching, pitching up the mound to try and teach them how to, you know, feel like they're getting over their front side or whatever they're, you know, whatever the drill's doing. Like, obviously they're not pitching uphill in the game. And then, the, yeah. the other tie-in that you, you, know, you mentioned there is, you know, I need you to do it nine out of 10 times. Well, for 99% of these kids, they're not doing it. They're just not playing enough baseball right. or they're not doing enough repetition. Like they go to their hitting instructor for 30 minutes and then that's it. Like, hey, I, I paid for it. So it's got to be better than if I was doing it on my own. Like, no, 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 no. Doing it consistently, like go play catch with your, with your dad is going to be 10 times more beneficial to you, even if your dad's not teaching anything than if right. you're getting a 30 minute pitching lesson from a, from a guru. And 30 minutes is tough. I don't, I mean, that's just like, a, we're going to play catch. I'm going to have you throw a flat round. I'm going to mm-hmm. say good when you hit my glove and I'm going to send you home. <laughs> 30 minutes, 30 minutes is the moneymaker, right? That's I, the, I know, cause you can, the turnovers quick, but I, I, I understand that man, but it's, it's tough. It's man. a consistency. Like I want to see the, you know, the kid, the kid that's the, I see it with all time, all the time with the kids, you know, younger kids. The best ones play the most, and they pre- and they do the most stuff. They're obviously more, a lot of them are better athletes. You know, you see it different level of athleticism with some of these kids. But you know, the kid that plays catch every day with his dad in the front yard has a stronger arm than the guy who just plays catch once a week at practice with us. Like he just oh, no. does, and he's and he likes it more. And if you like the game more, you want to be better at it. You know, there's it's almost like you got too many options for kids these days and they, you know, they can play so much stuff. You know, you're in SoCal and you said by the time they get to 13, 14, they're one sport athletes. The kids that are one sport athletes are taking it real serious. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. Those are the, the and the ones that are still playing multiple sports are casual athletes, yeah. and they just want to do some stuff with their friends, whatever. So it's you know there's we're talking about a lot of different things, and I'm jumping around a little bit, but you know consistency and practice, you know it's there's no secret to why guys are good. Guys in the big leagues they practice more. They might be better athlete than you, but they also do it more. They just you know do what it. the end of it is? Not only do not only have they and do they practice more, they practice better than anyone. Yeah. <clears throat> That's a good point. They, they practice guys. better than anyone on the planet. You know, like, you know, we go to spring training every year in the middle of the scout season, um, and we just go down the field and watch these guys take BP, which I don't think a lot of people really understand how physical baseball players are at that level. Everyone's got a baseball player, he's fat, and I'm like, incorrect. Go stand next to a big leaguer, and almost to a man, every one of them is, don't matter if they're 5'9 or 6'7, has forearms out to here, big old asses, and shoulders, and they're tapered, and they're just, they're just built different. And it is the yep. biggest factor in why they can do some of the things they can do is they just have, like, they're just, they're just stronger than most people think they are. It's a you physical know? sport, man. It is it's every physical, single day. Physical. You, it's a, it's an, it's a, from the time BP starts through the end of the game, it's a workout. Like even if you're not doing anything, it's a workout. And, and a lot of guys will work out in the morning or the workout after the game. Like it's a, you're just a, you're basically burning energy at its peak for 12 hours a day. And yeah, you get to fun. July and it's your body's like you're tired. You're dude, tired. stop. Give me the all-star break. Like I go watch Ryan Braun take BP and Ryan Braun is not massive by any stretch of the imagination. He's probably nope. six, one, six, two buck, 92 bills. Maybe at this point in his life, a little heavier he swings like a 34 ounce bat, which in today's baseball, no one does. It's a law, but he's just like, this thing is just like from point A to point B and you're like, I barely see it. It's a ninja blade. I don't know how he's doing it because he's not huge, you know? And, like, all those guys are like that. We had uh, Jesus Aguilar last year, which, he, like, Midwest guys, you all probably see him. And that guy's just – you don't see the bat move. You just don't see the effort that these guys put into making anything happen on a baseball field because they're so strong and coordinated and physical. And it is just – and and I, I think that goes back to, like, everybody here played so we get it. Mm-hmm. So, like, we talk about the coaching stuff. Like, I don't know if those guys that aren't really up close to those guys and don't have that experience realize that. I know we're teaching these kids these things because we see big leaguers do it. You don't have you don't have the context for how physical those guys are. Yeah, you know, for sure. Outside of measurables. And that's why there's that's also a disconnect. Uh, that you know, like that doesn't make sense, you know, because this kid is five nine, hundred and forty pounds and he's doing it and it just looks wrong because it's different than Miguel Cabrera doing it when he's, you know, as big as he is and has had millions of swings, you know, and it is just second nature, you know. And like, right. and that's why it's just so tough to kind of put, put it together when like you see these swings and like these video clips and you're like, this is, he's not ready. That's a big part of it too. Like the kids aren't ready for the type of practicing that they're doing yet. You know, like you, you need the strength to be able to pull off a lot of these moves, man. And for they're sure. not getting that when they're just not getting it at a young age when we might have gone, you know, gone with our buddies, you know, yeah. Climb fences, monkey bars, doing stuff that's physical, second nature stuff that kids did outside. Now they don't do that anymore. No doubt. No. And I How much is that? High school. Like you, you, I played multiple sports in high school, so you're always yeah. doing something, moving around. You know, I'm from the boonies. My dad was a contractor. I'm like lifting plywood when I'm like 11 years old and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it's, it's, 
You talk about you talk about man strength, like yeah, they talk about guys like Mickey Mantle never lifting weights, like he's just man strong. Like yeah, but this this guy's probably shoveling on the farm from the time he was eight years old. Like that's strength. You want to talk about that's strength? Funny, like that's a funny thing, man. All the older guys, they they jumped on moving trucks as soon as the season was over. Yeah, like <laughs> they're, they're strong dudes. You know, they're hauling carpet. You know, so it's just it's just a different time, man. That's that's all it is. It's just and you, you adapt, man. You adapt to it, so. Well, let me move us on. So, speaking of the old guys, when did you ever read the book Ball Four? I don't read, man. You know, I'm just <laughs> listen, 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 listen to it. Listen to it, Bobby. Bobby, you're the smartest person you know on this podcast right now. You both Easily. know that it's not true. Well, it is. It's true with regard to Bobby, but not to you. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that's fine. I mean, your conspiracy theories. Come on, man. Um, but High Book ACT. Ball Four, which you both need to audio book it. You both need to listen to it because. Like I cried at the end. He loses his daughter. It's a profoundly oh, amazing it. book. That's like way deep into it. That's not really like in the. But anyway, so the the book Ball Four is by Jim Bowden. That book that book like exposed what pro baseball is, and he's basically just taking notes throughout the season to write like a sort of like tell all book um, as he goes. And this expansion league is he's a uh, converting into a knuckleballer, and he threw like a complete game shot on the World Series for the Yankees in like his second year. And so he was like a known commodity, but then he basically blew out his arm and had to become a knuckleballer. So he's documenting his whole season. And it's just like, he's just recording all the shenanigans that happens, like all of it. Just it, So it's A, you'll relate to it. Like you'll love listening to the book. But um, my point is that as we talk about minor league salaries and some of the things we all had to do to survive, which that book is just entirely littered with that stuff. That's what ball four is. But he's also a super smart guy. He vouches for other players like this was back in the 60s 70s like he was close to a lot of the african-american players he was vouching for them trying to like like not have this racial divide in his team um so i really respect jim bowden a lot like he like he's it's a profound book but you look back on it and all of us having been retired for a number of years now you really you start to cherish a lot of the hardness and the weirdness and like so when you and i we were roommates together we slept in the clubhouse together so my question for you when is as you look back and you know that minor league salaries are going to start changing like they're going to be better right and they're probably going to continue to progress and be better um i look back and i don't regret the hardship that came from the financial struggle um but as you look back and it's clearly going to be better for everyone but as you look back do you cherish the hardness of it, do you cherish it in part because of the grind and, and, the, and the low income and the things you had to do? Like those memories, do they make it more special man, or less I, I special? Take, I take, I didn't even take the money out of it, man. I just loved all of it, you know, just, just for, you know, whatever that book is, you know, like the shenanigans that go on. I mean, like you get to be competitive, you're around a bunch of people that, you know, maybe you have some differences, but for the most part, you're like-minded, you know, at the same time. I mean, it's just fun, man. You know, it's like it was seven years. It's just, just madness, you know, but you know, it all was, it was beautiful, you know, just to put it into a word, man. Like, it's just fun, you know, the bus rides and, you know, like even though sleeping in the clubhouse sucked, there were a couple nights where sleeping in the clubhouse didn't suck. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's just all of it, man. Like, it's just fun, man. The stories, like you can go on for hours and hours about like just the stuff that the people you met, like the stuff that happened, you know, and the money is the money, man. You know, you get five people in an apartment, you split it, you know, Everybody drop your 200 bucks a month in the pot and, you know, you, you keep it moving, man. You know, get you a nice air mattress, you know, maybe sleep on the couch, eat a bunch of spaghetti. You know, you do what you got to do, man. So, I mean, it was fun, man. I, 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 
I would do it again in a heartbeat for the same amount of money. No questions asked, you know, but you know, these guys are going to get taken care of a lot better than we did. So. Yeah. Bobby, what's your craziest, uh, minor league story with, with regard to just like slumming it and conditions and stuff like that? Uh, so I was, I guess, lucky enough to have a host family a lot of times, you know, the, the, the worst was probably indie ball. Uh, Camden comes to mind where they just <laughs> not, not <laughs> you really. show, yeah, you show up and it's like, they don't even have options for you. It's like, Hey, you know, are there, are there apartments around here? And the, and the front office just doesn't know. Like, yeah. so, so now you got two days, like we'll give you two days in the hotel. It's like, yeah. all right, well, how much is the hotel? Like, Oh, they don't have a team rate. It's like, <laughs> all right. Okay. So what I go, where do people live in Southern New Jersey? That There's a big bridge could, right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you can sleep. I might as well, you're better off sleeping in the car. So I, I don't have any specific hardships. I mean, I don't look, I'm like when I don't look at it as a hardship, like, you know what you're getting into. You know, I think there's going to be unintended consequences for some of the, for some of the pay that minor leaguers are going to end up getting, and that could be seven teams down to five minor league teams. And that money that those other two teams are going to get, it's going to get dispersed. You get a little bit more, but now the guys coming after you're not going to have as many spots. You know, I think that's going to be a an unintended consequence to getting a little more money. But you appreciate it more. Like you're not you're not there for the money. You're there to, you're there to reach the pinnacle. You know, I'm not I'm not playing minor league baseball because I because I enjoy the lifestyle. Like it ain't it ain't a lifestyle worth enjoying for most guys. You're not it's not like you're traveling around, you know, people think baseball and the first thing that comes to mind is like wherever you're from. I'm from Chicago. You think Cubs and Sox. Yeah, you play for the White Sox, you get to go to uh New York and LA and you go to nice cities. You play for the White Sox minor league team, you're going to you know, the middle of nowhere, Virginia, what, Cedar Rapids, Cedar Rapids. Yeah. You're Bird, in Iowa. Birmingham. Like you're in place, you're in places that people don't choose to live in. So, <laughs> and like, that's just the reality of minor league baseball. So it's not glitz and glamor when you're down there, you know, it's, it's struggle. Like you want it. You, it's part of the, the, I hate the word grind, but it's part of the grind. Like you, it is what it is, man. I'm trying to get out. Like I want to get out. I want to try to get to that next level. Yeah. It's fun though. I mean, you got story. You have friends like you guys are played minor league ball. Like Dan and I played together. You know, you keep in touch with a lot of guys you used to play with. You've got connections. You don't seem like when I haven't talked to you in how many years now, and it's like, hey, yeah, but you know, that, that's, 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 the, that's the beauty of it, man. Like that's the best part. You look, you go through your phone right now, and I bet there's just random text messages from people that you might not have talked to, and then like you'll see something on TV and be like, bro, you remember when that thing happened? Yep, we were in no doubt just that one night. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. So, and then you got to delete that text message. One second. I got, I got a visitor. Podcast first. Podcast first. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, as I look back, like, and I had an amazing host family my first year. That was also one of my, like, less eventful, I guess you could call it, kind of years. Like, when you – if everyone in minor league baseball gets, like, a great one-bedroom apartment, like, really nice, comfy bed, you know, like – it just, I don't know, like, so when Wynn and I were teammates, we were roommates for six weeks, seven weeks, something like that. Maybe. And Yeah, maybe. And Sport, we were I in the hotel. <laughs> yeah. And we were in the hotel and had to split the team rate for a while. And then you were like, hey, man, I want to let my bank account recover. We're going, yeah. to the, we're going to the clubhouse. You can do what you want, Dan. But I'm like, well, I can't afford 70 bucks a night. So, okay. And where did you sleep? I was in the, so I, I was, was in the training room. I was under the table. I honestly had an air mattress underneath the table and I would flip up the linen, the tablecloth 
And then I was like slide my air mattress in and I would sleep up against the back of the couch. That's where I slept for about a month until we got like, no, maybe, maybe two weeks until we got like into two, like, it was like two weeks. Until yeah. We got into uh, the dorm rooms at Rutgers Camden, which you had the, um, I mean, I'm like, what, what material were the mattresses? Well, they were covered in a very thick, like wind pant vinyl. Very, or, uh, very nylon material. Yeah. 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 Like a catamaran sail almost. <laughs> It's nice. And you had to push these two beds together because they were too little by themselves to make like a nice bed for an adult man, you know? Yeah. And for everyone that didn't have, didn't get the luxury of being uh, in a Camden river shark locker room. What was the floor? That old indoor outdoor carpeting that had mud and all the, all the crap on it. A lot of peanut butter and jelly stains. Oh, that was the worst. Yeah. And and the, the lights never went off. So the, that's the fluorescent right. lights buzzed 24-7, so you had to get away from it somehow. And so I went yeah, to the training room, and which was great, but that floor was disgusting because it was like tiles, and they dumped the things out. So I was in there, and a lot of nights I didn't remember to turn the ice machine off because every hour and a half it dumps a whole new load into the hopper, and I'm just yeah. sound asleep. It's like, ah, and you just wake up, and you're terrified that you're under I remember attack. you spazzing out one night trying to like break it or something you were doing. You just started... You just went off like yelling at it because you kept waking up. I hadn't gotten a good night's sleep in a while, and I was I was getting pissed. I was getting pissed. <laughs> I did that twice, man, because I played in Bridgeport too, and they didn't have the, they had the same setup. You could stay at that Holiday Inn, which was a team hotel. It was like 140 bucks a night, and I was like, well, I'm gonna be broke in a month doing that, so that's not gonna work out. So we just lived upstairs in the suites in the stadium. Like you know, you could buy the club boxes, so they never locked them. So we would just like wait, hang around, and. We just hang out in the stadium and we go and pass out up there and then we leave in the morning. It's like, that's what we had to do. We had to get out of there before the front office showed up, roll up your air mattress, toss yep. it in your locker, and then we'd go to Wegmans and then we'd eat lunch and then we'd come back to the stadium. And like, that's what we did every day, man. It was just but You were safe in Bridgeport, though. No one was going to those games. Yeah, but you had to walk back between the stadium and the hotel, so that was dicey. You know, you needed a pocket knife. You need it, yeah. yeah. Bridgeport's you get sketchy in Bridgeport, yeah, which is which sucks because it's nice. It's right on the water there. You know, it could be it real be, nice. It should be way nicer. It's just yes. Yeah. You know, Camden and Bridgeport, like the same spot in that league, man. But nah, you just do. You know, we played at Evansville. You know, Bossy Field. Like, was that the league of their own stadium? Mm-hmm. You know, like this thing is wood seats and ceiling fans, and you know, like a all brick clubhouse down, like a Ooh. middle school PE lockers. You yeah. know, just. Just getting mud butt, eating pizza after the game and hot dogs. Like, it was a mess, man. <laughs> oh. Just a mess, dude. But, you know, I love it, man. I wouldn't I wouldn't undo it, you know. It was a great time. You know? Yep. But, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think one of the things that Bobby and I have talked about with indie ball is guys that went to big-time schools in college, they don't go play indie ball. If you play at Auburn, you play at Tennessee, you play what about at South Flo- Carolina? Florida, you go yeah. South Carolina where you have like a couple thousand fans every game and an amazing experience. Those guys, if they don't get drafted, they don't, they don't go into indie ball. I mean, at least not, I'm talking about like straight out. Like I didn't get drafted. So I'm going to try it in indie ball. Those guys, they don't, no one does that. Like it's extremely rare. It's the guys who didn't get an an experience yet. Like me or other guys who are like, I had 70 moms and dads show up in my game and six girlfriends and a couple athletes from the other sports. And I really want to have like, I want to have the experience. Yeah, and I've, those are the guys that gritted out. Like, if you went to Auburn, like, like, what are you gonna like? You're not gonna sleep in a clubhouse. Like, you're used to being treated well, which is how you should be treated. But it's still just 
said griminess that you have to be ready for. Yeah, doing the scouting side, man, I think I've had maybe probably not even up to 10 players like reach out and ask for independent ball connections. And only one of them have, has gone out and played. And like once the rest of them realize what they're going to make, where they're mm-hmm. going to be, like they go to USD, Cal State Fullerton, they're out here in Southern California. And they're like, I got to go where? And I'm like, they're like, yeah, I'm good. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go to grad school or get in the coaching. I'm not, I'm not doing that. So yeah. I'm yeah. Like, no, but you're missing out. I mean, like I said, like looking back at the, I'm, I think this probably goes for everybody. When you look back at all the times in your life when you're just, I got a steady paycheck and I'm nice and comfy and everything's good. And I got my routine. Those aren't the memories that you make. The memories that you make are when things get real. There's good adversity, man. Like when you're young, if you're 21 and you're done with school, just go do it for two years. Don't make any money. You know, you'll, you'll figure out a lot about life in those two year stretches where you're not, not killing it. You know, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll learn how to get creative. It'll work out in the long run. No doubt. Yeah. So when, as we, we start to wrap up a little bit, um, I want to hear like, wh- what, what does scouting look like right now? So obviously you're not out going to games cause there aren't any games. So like, what are, what are scouts doing? Uh, man. Um, you know, we're doing, you know, some video stuff. Um, uh, just kind of trying to cover any gaps that we may have in our scouting department that we can, you know, not being able to go out to games, man. I think every team's kind of doing a little bit, something like that. I would have to imagine, you know, but, you know, other than that, man, you know, you can't go outside. Somebody might cough on you. So you're just in the <laughs> house, you know, wearing the same dry fit for three days in a row. It looks good. Yeah. You know, I'm, this one's not skanky yet because it's Monday. So <laughs> this will get this will make it through Wednesday, you know, then I'll have to switch it out. But uh, no, nah, man, it's a, it's weird, man. This is this is I mean, especially for you, too. Not even with the scout stuff. It's April and there's no baseball. Yeah. The last time that's been a part. Right. Of, you know what I'm saying? since you're, what, eight years old maybe? So it's nuts, man. But, I mean, I don't know how long it's going to go, but I'm just going to be staring at my iPad and computer here for as long as they tell me to and trying to do whatever I can from here, man. But it's weird, i tell you that much. Have you made yourself a mask yet? Uh, I just wear a Jason mask out just to mess with people. <laughs> they didn't say what kind of mask. They just said a mask. So I just it's wear it it just everything's covered but your nose yeah, and mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I don't talk to people. I just put it on, go outside, and you know, just kind of, you know. If you when you people. in your free time, there's a Twitter thread. I don't know. I could link you to it. It's just the people and the homemade masks they've made. Yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, people with, uh, I mean, just like grocery bags over their head. Do you know that like plastic square bag that like a new comforter or pack of sheets comes in? Yeah, the plastic. So a woman, a woman with that plastic thing is all the way over her head. I saw there, a chick with, she had a birthday party going on at like a McDonald's. She just had yeah. it strapped around there. I saw some Crown Royal bags somebody made yesterday. They just split them in that's half. A, hey, that's a, that's a good one. That is yeah. a good one. That is a good one. But yeah, Get no, the benefit of the alcohol, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, when thanks for coming on the show, man. It's good to see you. I think this is a yeah, man, great you know, conversation. Yeah, you know, it's, it's good to catch up with you guys, man. Yeah, well, it was good to, good talk. Well, stay on off air. I got some more stuff I want to ask you. Yeah, absolutely. So, man. Stuff, so when do you, uh, before we sign off, when is there anywhere you'd like people to follow up with you on the uh, on the web? Do you want to be uh, found? I mean, if you want to be bored, you can hit up the Twitter handle is WinPelzer, um, at WinPelzer. Uh, Instagram's pretty boring. It's just tacos and some pictures I take of my camera. You know, <laughs> every now and then I'll put something funny up there. But, you know, just a low-key guy. I like movies and, you know, good breakfast meats. That's it, man. 
know, but <laughs> hopefully this was enjoyable. Um, hopefully I didn't get too long-winded, you know. That was but, great. Uh, no, no, man. This is good, good stuff, time, you know. And to all you out there in uh, Twitter and YouTube, thanks for being with us. If you're listening uh, later on in iTunes or Spotify, appreciate you. So be sure to share the uh, show with a friend, uh, subscribe, and we'll see you here every Monday, Wednesday, Friday on live on Twitter and YouTube. So we'll catch you back in podcast land soon. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Wayne. All right, man. Y'all take it easy. You come out and break the night. You'll be wearing our time so free. Yeah, she's trying to avoid you, avoid everyone.